Two Poor Bastards contains explicit content and drunken ramblings. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to Two Poor Bastards, where two friends get drunk, talk whiskey, and explore their favorite pop culture obsessions. I'm Eric. And I'm Kyle. All right, let's get started. Let's do it. Episode one, we are going to talk about Hellraiser and more broadly Clive Barker, and we're going to go over what is our whiskey of the uh, occasion. So our whiskey of the day is going to be Buffalo Trace. Mm. So this is what I consider like my benchmark whiskey. This is one that's affordable. Typically, you can go to the store and buy it. It's sort of available, but like most things now bourbon in general really along with all the whiskey has gotten really popular Mm -hmm. and because of that the people who distill the stuff can't keep up with the demand so then things get what's the word i'm looking for allocated Mm. that's what i want to say a lot of stuff is heavily allocated now especially stuff from the buffalo trace distillery so like the name implies buffalo trace comes from buffalo trace distillery they do a bunch of other things their main one it's mash bill is going to be uh what they call buffalo trace's number one mash bill Mm. so that's said to be about 10 percent rye and around 80 something corn and then the rest is going to be malted barley the actual amounts aren't really disclosed so we don't know for sure so this is like everyone's best guesstimate one that they have buffalo traces mash bill two is used for a majority of their other stuff and that's going to be a higher rye content one but for this one it's the low rye content i like it's got a good balance to it like it doesn't there's nothing in there that's like too punchy like it's it doesn't have like too much peat flavor to it no it's got a good none of that uh no i mean like scotch whiskeys you aren't getting smoke you aren't getting peat you aren't getting that kind of thing and those only use one thing malted barley usually unless it's a blend to make most american stuff actually the only american one that that i can think of off the top of my head right now that only uses one thing in it is stranahan's and that's out of colorado but they use malted barley as well but yeah i mean bourbon the majority of what's going to be in the mash bill is corn Corn's the big thing. You know where you can't get that, or I did not find it at, is Total Wine. And when they do get it in, the crazy thing is, is a seven fifty of Buffalo Trace, usually anywhere else, is going to cost you somewhere between twenty and twenty five dollars. They sell it for thirty there. What the fuck? They're supposed to be. And they're supposed to be cheaper than anyone else. But here's the crazier thing: the rare times where they get. 175s of Buffalo Trace in $35. How do, what? Yeah, and everywhere else that I see it, you know, it's usually somewhere between $50 and $60. There's something going on there. So it, I don't understand. I, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes they get, you know, exclusive barrel picks, which I don't know how that could really happen because one barrel can't go to all the total wines. I would imagine one barrel, 50 gallons, that's about 100 bottles maybe. 
it's uh, it's it's quite a bit i mean when you think about it usually well buffalo trace here the stuff that we're drinking uh doesn't have an age statement on it ah but usually not always but usually it's aged about nine years which a lot of people say that's the perfect time for bourbon to be aged like that's the sweet spot younger than that it's not so good older than that things can get real iffy they say that bourbons that have wheat in the mash bill replacing the rye lend themselves better to a longer aging process and that's the kind of stuff that's going to be your pappy van winkle that kind of thing it uses a weeded mash bill mm. and they say that wheat in the mash bill leads to like a and this is the word that I absolutely hate when people talk about whiskey is when they say smooth. If, if you're saying smooth when you talk about whiskey, it's just, no. it doesn't do it for me. Because if you're drinking it right, if you're sipping it, nothing should seem overly harsh. Even when you get into things like barrel proof whiskeys, which the proof in it isn't toned down. It's like right from the barrel. That's what the proof is going to be. If you're sipping on it and enjoying it that way, like you should. Yes. I mean, just, it, just the sip. It shouldn't be j- just the sip. <laughs> it, it shouldn't be too harsh, but it's like whenever I'm with my stepdad and I kind of introduced him to whiskey, he's just always like, oh, this is real smooth. And I just am like, stop saying. What's the shit that we were drinking that was like really watered down? Or- wild turkey. We were just drinking regular wild regular- turkey. And that's 80 proof. And I don't like anything really that's lower than 90 proof because it is like drinking water. But that's a lot of shit that you see for like scotch. A lot of it is at 80 proof, so 40%. By the way, we only drink our whiskey neat. That was another thing I actually wanted to talk about. I was thinking about that when I was driving over here, how I wanted to talk about that. It's so hot today that I almost maybe kind of would have entertained putting ice in this whiskey just because it's so fucking hot outside. And that is the one thing that I would never do, never put anything in my whiskey. I know. But... I also thought there's someone out there who's just like sitting there, you know, these guys are totally wrong. You should always put water in your whiskey because it opens it up. And if they aren't opening up their whiskey, they don't really know what it tastes like. So, I mean, it's... I'm making the jerk off hands right now or the the hand, the one handy, because... He's looking at me in the eye, too, <laughs> which you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> oh, that's not how you do that move? Oh, okay. Maybe we could do that, but well, it's, you can enjoy your whiskey however you want. If you want to put ice in it, go ahead. If you want to put a little bit of water in it to open up, you can do that. Even though 99% of whiskeys have water added to them to bring them to a certain proof. So right. adding more water to something that already had water in it seems like really unnecessary at that point. It's like, oh, you know, I really need this whiskey watered down even more because it's too, it's not smooth enough for me. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, if you wanted something smooth, you're drinking the wrong shit. We've automatically just now, like, made ourselves whiskey snobs. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Uh, no. I, I like my shit neat. And if you don't know what neat means, that just means plan without anything in it. <laughs> Bar terms. Bar terms. Go to the bar, at, order some whiskey, ask for it neat. You'll seem like a cool person. Yeah, and then you, if you're not used to it, you're definitely going to like choke it up in front of everyone and look like a total 
fucking idiot. So. That reminds me of a video that I saw. Not whiskey related, but it was cognac. Some guy was sitting in his car after he just bought a mini of some Hennessy. <laughs> so he made a video of himself and he's just like, yeah, man, I'm going to drink this Hennessy. This is the good stuff. This is what all the cool people drink, which is like just Hennessy, regular VS, which if you know your cognacs at all, like VS is the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Not literally the barrel, but it's like the lowest. There's VS, VSOP, XO, and other things. So it's just like, this is the cheap, plain stuff that gets pumped out, kind of like what we were just talking about earlier, the regular wild turkey at 80 proof. If we were drinking turkey, not to just like go all over the place, Normally, it'd be like 101, so 101 right. proof. Right. So I will say, and because I, I, I may have just like jumped into the, the what is it, the Long Branch little uh, whiskey. It's definitely completely different than regular wild turkey. I will, it's got a lot more of a bite to it. But we will get into that in another episode, okay. and I'll let you like have it wash over your palate and then give your thoughts because I like whiskey. But I'm not, I don't know that much about it. I can tell the differences of stuff, but I'm not like, this is fucking XYZ, and this means this, and this was distilled this way, and it's composed of this, that, and the other. I don't fucking know any of that shit. So, yeah, I, to get into that, there's this perfect example of, like, the steps of being a whiskey fan. Well, anyways, the Hennessy story is this guy tried to drink this mini of Hennessy and just started choking and crying. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that he wasn't ready for it. But back to the whiskey thing. So the like steps of getting into whiskey is like, okay, you're just getting into it. Step one, like you drink a whiskey and you're like, this whiskey is good. Step two, you drink a whiskey and you're like, oh, I can pick out these flavors. Like there's caramel, there's vanilla, there's uh, maybe talking about rye whiskey. You can taste menthol or eucalyptus in it, that kind of thing. You get to that. Then the next step after that is I can taste what distillery this came from or i can taste how old this whiskey is and i can tell you this that and everything about it like i can tell you it's pre-fire heaven hill or post-fire heaven hill because that wow. place had a big fire and there's a lot of debate like they say things before the fire are much better than things after but and then the last step is like after you get your palate worked up and you can do all these things then you're just back to you drink it and like this is good whiskey <laughs> the the full cycle. I got gotcha. you. It's the, the circle of life. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. I I just enjoy whiskey. I mean, I enjoy other things, but whiskey is delicious. My first whiskey was Jameson. Th that was my first whiskey as well. That was wow, my okay. real introduction into it. Yeah. That's the first one that I tasted that I didn't want to choke my guts up. Like, I drank it straight. And I was like, yeah, this is, uh, this is really good. And that was actually really when I started drinking altogether. Because, by the way, folks, I didn't start drinking until I was 25. Wow. Yeah. What was, is wrong with you? You were a good oh. boy. Uh, no, it's just my family's a bunch of alcoholics, and I was scared to death of turning into a raging <laughs> alcoholic. I don't know how I got into that. And, you know, I have to say, like, in my totem pole of which regions a whiskey comes from, that I prefer most and least, I would have to say my least preferred one would be Irish whiskeys, which is weird because I started out on that. And by the way, I can't drink Jameson anymore because of how many times I've puked because of that. <laughs> Same thing with uh, Maker's Mark. As you know, that was the last thing that I threw up from when we were out of transmission. Ah, uh, yes, the good times. Which transmission is a 
uh, night here in the Twin Cities where we celebrate 80s music and basically like goth culture. <laughs> and cringe every time the Smiths plays. Or some people just fucking love it. Like the girls that I know that I go with sometimes, they only want to go on Smiths nights. So It hurts. It hurts. I don't, I don't get it. And, I don't and understand. we're already losing people now because we're like, oh, Smiths. No, I don't think so. Really? That Morrissey? Come on now. Yeah, he's he is a super douche. Like, he's a douche 2000. Like, there's just no, like, everything about him is the worst. Like, you cannot pick a worst human being to, like, like. Well, there are. You, yeah, worse. you could. Yeah, no. Like but, me, if you liked me, that would be a worse person. <laughs> how does that make, I mean, you just compared yourself to Morrissey. And to me, that's like, that's pretty low as far as. I wasn't comparison. Like, I wasn't comparing myself to him as a person. I was comparing just, like, terrible as a thing. <laughs> That's true. You I'm are terrible. not like Morrissey. No, yeah, yeah. No, you're terrible. I, in a, but a different kind of terrible. A different class. We're both terrible. Yeah, no. We're, I mean, we're, that's the thing. You should know we're both terrible. We're per- terrible people. It's, and it's I, very true. I enjoy it. So do you have... Uh, are you concluded your, your whiskey... I guess Briefing? we kind of got all over the place with the Buffalo Trace here. Like I was saying earlier, it's my benchmark one. It's if you want something good at a fair price, that you is, really can't go wrong with this. And honestly, that's the thing is is how because coming from drinking some of the other you know Scotch whiskeys and some of the other things, you're looking at you know fifty, sixty, or more a bottle and. Right. You get into this, which is, it's very good. It's got a very good uh, taste to it. It's very, like, I feel like it's well-balanced. And for the price point on it, it's really good. And it's a, it's a great whiskey. I know that I did talk to one broad that I was, and I don't mean that in a derogatory term, lady. I don't, I don't either. I subconsciously say that a lot. And most of it I can trace back to, like, early 2000s hip-hop. Like Cash Money, their edited versions. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that, okay, that's your excuse. That's fine. It influenced me. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's like Project Chick was the edited version of Project Bitch. And in that, instead of saying, I got a bitch who does this, they're like, I got a broad who shoot dice, a broad who ain't right. And I'm just, it's somehow it stuck with me. So please, if you're listening to this and we say that. <laughs> We don't mean it in a bad way. Somehow it just became something that I say and like preemptively I'm yeah. going to apologize. Yes. It's going to come out and I I won't even know and I'll say it. Yes. Anyways, are we concluded with this segment? Do you feel good? Did you wrap I, I wanna, everyth- everything? No, I want to keep going here. There's, uh, there's more things that I could say. Well, we certainly can go as far as you want with the Buffalo Trace, or we can get into the Clive Barker talk, and we could talk about the film that we attempted to watch and failed. All right, we can do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to talk about whiskey in every show. We've got a lot to talk We've got about. Lots we'll to get talk back. About. We'll get on topic here. Definitely. So, but just saying, Buffalo Trace. I certainly give a big thumbs up to that. I so do I. I I really really like it it's a, as you said it's a go-to standard when you want something that is kind of just refreshing and balanced and you know just a good standby that there it is it's dependable it's good you're not going to get a weird shitty bottle it's going to be good yeah cheers motherfucker cheers chin up
So we attempted Feel to watch. Free to drink with us. Yeah, <laughs> we attempted to watch Leviathan, the making of Hellraiser one and two, and then partially three. If you can get past all of the discs and all of the things, uh, I had seen it previously because I I am the resident Hellraiser Clive Barker fanatic. So of course I ordered this from England and had it imported over and all and that whole bit and probably spent too much money on it. Uh, but that's just the kind of guy I am just spending money that I shouldn't be yeah. on really stupid shit. So yes, in this topic, Eric is the expert. Yeah. I would be considered the, the newbie into it. I mean, I enjoyed the Hellraiser movies as a series. I really like it. Hellraiser. The first one is one of my favorite horror movies. Yes. Uh, it's up in the top five for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a huge horror fan person, so I don't, you know, go as deep into it as some people. Uh, like he's, I didn't finish watching the the documentary, but it's been a busy weekend with work. I mean, <laughs> it's you got stuff to do. You're a busy man. It's it was Memorial Day weekend, and in my job, I have to be there, and it's yeah. really terrible. And I was working eleven plus hour shifts. Yuck. Weekend, and it was gross. So I mean, the reason that we're doing this is so we cannot do that and i don't mean like coming to this grossly unprepared (laughs) like i am it's like we're doing this so we don't have to do something like that in the future although yes i am kind of grossly unprepared for this but i mean it's okay i'm the guy who doesn't know anything so hey you know what i feel that you did spectacular on the whiskey piece so good job we attempted to get through leviathan and Again, I've done all of all of the research and all of the watched those documentaries all the way through, and have been following Clyde Barker since I was a little kid. It's you know like uh, this fucking Hellraiser shirt. He's wearing an awesome Hellraiser shirt, by the this way. This is almost We're really into it. Twenty years old. This shirt. That's like, that's about as old as you are. <laughs> yeah, it's that's a, about twenty yeah. years old. <laughs> but I mean, I'm twenty one. I'm winking loudly you had to you had to grow a little bit before you could wear that it mm-hmm. was it's definitely not onesie size Mm-mm. so no so anyways i bought this a very long time ago and it was like one of the, the things that when i got a job like i again spending money on shit that i shouldn't i bought myself a hellraiser sh- and i bought this out of a mail order catalog by the way because where i grew up m-a-l-e <laughs> uh Listen, we don't. We're not gonna talk about that this this episode. That's like we're gonna. All right, all right, keep yeah, going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I ordered it from a, a catalog called Geithner Legion. Fit like Hit Parader and some of those other like. I'm not gonna say what era those were popular in, but a little bit ago, a bit ago, they're a while ago. And so I ordered the catalog, and they had all like the metal stuff, and that's because I was someone living in the middle of nowhere. That's how you got all the cool shit. There's no hot topic where I lived. Like it didn't. Oh man, you were you're out there. I know. Uh, I'm not gonna say where you live, but I know about it. Oh no, we could we could say I'm from Fergus Falls, and that is literally I think maybe the butthole of Minnesota. Oh, that's not true, but I felt it was. It was it was the worst there. Uh, so, According to a guy I talked to at work today, Minneapolis is the butthole of the state. Really? He was really upset. Why? Because he can't work on his car in his garage, apparently. Is that just a Richfield thing? Because I've heard that before. You would say Minneapolis. He didn't say Richfield. I, I'm in Richfield, but whatever. All right, we're getting back Wait, to it. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. So uh, the 
that documentary came out. I think this one Leviathan. I think this came out last year or two years ago. I don't remember, and uh, I feel terrible for not being very accurate with it. But anyways, it potentially, once you get past all of the verbal copulation, is pretty interesting. But as we discovered and as I forgot, they spent the first, what, 45 minutes sucking each other's dicks? I It had to be longer than that. It was like the biggest circle <laughs> jerk ever. Like, we weren't getting any useful information out of it other than everyone really really liked working with each other if they had just recently met to work on the movie or they had known each other from theater days yeah long ago and it just been keep going and they just talked about how much they love each other so everybody loved each other right on the well i mean we we don't know about clive barker because he wasn't there to no jerk other people but everyone else who was there really really liked working with each other yeah 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 so uh there was some nuggets and again so what i did is i because i have too many versions of that movie that i own i mean no less than four or five versions of that movie or editions i should say of that movie so there is a abbreviated version of that documentary on the 30th anniversary edition of hillary's that was released last halloween and 30th anniversary yeah it doesn't seem like it's that old of a movie no 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 no. so uh it was much more concise and cut down all of the dick sucking was edited out so it was very brief like as much as is appropriate hey i really liked working that person and then it's done and then they cut out and they didn't like it wasn't one big like orgy of like congratulations so i mean that would make me feel pretty good if anything could make me feel good, which I don't know it could, but no, I don't. I don't think you'd like that. I mean, it would be cool for like a moment. I suppose, and I would you'd be get bored. Annoyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what's interesting about the the documentary is that it goes over the origins of the creation of Hellraiser and really how Clive Barker kind of burst onto the scene. And I think, from my understanding, is that. Uh, he started writing horror to cash in, essentially. So he started a theater group called the Dog, Co- Dog Company in the 70s. The Dong Company. <laughs> it could have been called that. It might be really appropriate. It's, there's still time. There's still time. Uh, dog. <laughs> dog. So anyways, as it goes, so this is where Doug Bradley and Clive Barker, so Doug Bradley is the guy who plays Pinhead in the this pretty much the series except for the last two pieces of shit uh, movies that were made to retain the rights to make more shitty movies. Peter Atkins is the guy that uh, wrote Hellraiser 2, 3, and 4. So he was in that. And he yeah, was, he was the most interesting guy in that documentary. Like he was legitimately excited, like super excited. Like he would be the guy, if there was a convention with the panel and he was on it, I would be fighting people to get into that. Yeah, no, definitely. He's an interesting dude. Uh, and he's gone on to do other things, uh, and I and I have some of these some of the things that are going. You'll be surprised what he's done. Uh, there's also Oliver Parker, so he played Moving Man number two. Yes, Moving Man number two with those eyebrows. Yeah, those eyebrows were fierce. So what's interesting is minimal as it was is in his appearances. Clive was basically saying, you know, hey, if you've been with me through you know, the, the theater days, we're going to, we're going to give you a spot in the movie. So it was a mixture of newly formed companies. So image animation 
had done, I think, one other movie prior to Hellraiser. They had did Highlander, actually. So they that was, Ooh. yeah, right? Yeah. So they they did some other good stuff, too. Uh, and then, really, Hellraiser is a genesis of Clive Barker and Chris Figg. You know, the, uh, Clive wanted to make movies, and Chris wanted to produce them. So they hooked up and, you know, started this project. So, and one of the things is that my understanding is that Hellbound Heart, which Hellraiser is essentially based off of, and the script were developed simultaneously. I'm not sure, like, you know, like what the time frame or the timetable of that was, but previous to that, he had written the books of Blood, and they're a collection of short stories. And let me tell you, as someone who has, you know, read all of the short stories, they are graphic and horrifying and beautiful and... You know, really, I think if you like the last time that I'd really been shocked in the, in that kind of way was reading like Naked Lunch, like being like jaw dropped, horrified and kind of astonished. Like because like I've always considered myself a person that is like always pushing my limits and, and being like, you know, like on E fucked and not really like eh, this is whatever. Rotten.com, you know, just eh, nothing. whatever. Like this is another day in the life. It's another di- Yeah, another day in the life. Uh, so those books got a visceral reaction out of me and just number one for how imaginative they are, especially comparative to other horror franchises like Stephen King and, and a lot of the other horror writers of that era, he took it, he took it to a deeply depraved, deeply sexual, erotic, uh, gory place that I think a lot of other authors kind of tiptoed around it. It seemed like a lot of things up to Clive Barker were really psychological based and they didn't really push the limit of, of experience and, you know, all the various themes of where they can go. So I mean, the deprived part, that's really my calling card right there. So, <laughs> and, you know, weird, weirdly enough, you know, I enjoy Hellraiser and some of Clive Barker's other works. We'll get not into as them. much as Hellraiser, but I have never read any of this stuff yet. And which is really weird because I really like reading and I kind of have to limit myself when I do because when I start reading, like I read and I don't do anything else. It's like yeah, I get you. personal right hygiene there. and food <laughs> really yeah. goes to the wayside because I'm too busy reading. Right. To do You're anything really else. considering calling into work. Like, you're like, I oh, can't put this When shit I'm down. at work, any moment that I can have to get into that book i'm fucking in that thing. i got you i right up in that book's guts Ooh, yeah you're getting me excited Ooh, reading Re- so like i have to read so hard I have to really mm. be careful with my reading habits but i really should start reading clive barker's you stuff should. because as you say with these reactions that you get i mean that's the stuff that i'm into mm-hmm. i may not be like i'm not super horror orientated but that's yeah. just something that I can get into. So, and the reason why, and I guess like when I like discovering Clive Barker's novels, like a little bit later on in my life, like one thing to understand about myself is that family time in my household is we watched horror movies. So, wow, that's yeah. yeah. So, I was six years old, we would we'd rent like all the Friday the Thirteenth, all of Nightmare on Elm Street. Like that is, there wasn't like. Family family movie night was like really fucked up. Like, and this is when video stores were still around, and you'd rent the video cassette player. 
the VCR. A tape? Do it was a tape. There wasn't anything else. Once upon a time, there was a thing. Magnetic tape is what movies were on. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes music, too. And you had to rewind it before you returned it. Be kind. Rewind. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we would, we would go rent, uh, like, a whole series of horror movies. And it would just be every random thing. So like, Phantasm and Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And Critters every and all that, yeah. Anything that was weird and obscure, my family's into it. And then, like, because my mom it was a horror freak. So that's, like, even that's now, cool. like, she's, like, her obsession is Stephen King. And she's read every, like, everything and you know now it's more like true crime kind of shit but when i was a kid it was straight horror like that's it that's all she wanted to watch we didn't get a choice kids movies fuck you we're watching freddy you're an adult tonight <laughs> you're, you're playing with the big kids so having gone through all of that i had first heard about hellraiser uh from my aunt because she also being a fucked up person really loved horror movies and so she was talking about this movie that she had seen. And this was, by the way, the time that it came out. So that puts an age on me a little don't bit. E- don't even think not, about I'm not, it. I'm not, I'm not even going there. Anyways, so I remember being a kid and my aunt saying, I just saw this movie and it is the most messed up thing I have ever seen. It is crazy. And I'm like, tell me more. I want to know more about this thing. And... She said what it was. It was Hellraiser. And I was a kid at the time. I'm like, oh, you said a naughty word. But it was great. And I was intrigued. So when I finally got to watch that movie about a year or two later, because I like grinded down my parents to like, we're going to rent this. We need to watch it. We need it. So this is like the late 80s. That I, I got to finally watch the... Mom, there is no pleasure without pain. Yeah. Let me <laughs> see this fucking movie right we're... now. So it took some conniving. But we we got to see it, and my life was totally changed. And so that began the the fascination with Hellraiser. Anyways, looping all the way back around to Leviathan, because, again, it's totally fucking off subject, and I apologize to all people that are listening because it's, like, rambling. Uh, this is what they want to hear. Ah, uh, yeah. They just want to hear us talking about it. Talking about shit, the excitement in our voices. Uh, what I do appreciate about Leviathan is it does actually give a, a – once you get past all the dick sucking, a, a really good understanding of where Clyde Barker comes from, his background, Doug Bradley's background, and how all these people are actually tied together to create this phenomenon. And there are other gems that are hidden further in the documentary that are not in the main part where they talk about, other people talk about, you know, Clive Barker's influences and his drives. So the original soundtrack was... Uh, originally designed by an industrial band called Coil. They had done the the initial score, but from what I hear, what I saw from Chris Fig basically said was, you know, asking very pointed questions. Have you ever done musical scores before? Can you write to cues? Can you write to moments? Can Do you know how to write music to add to a scene as opposed to just writing tones? And they were not very confident in their answer, so they ultimately decided to not go with them. Although initially, if somebody asked me that, I would feel really, really like, "Ooh, man, these are some really hard-hitting questions." Yeah. yeah, I don't know if I could do that if I didn't normally do that kind of thing. Right. So those guys, and I think like Coil, there were a, an experimental band. They, 
I don't know how classically trained they were as musicians. They're in essence noise artists. So they did really great sound design. They did, you know, I know that they've released some pretty uh, influential records, but as far as like, hey, can you write a film score? I think they wholeheartedly was like, no. Did they attempt anything at all? Did they do some test stuff? Was that ever? So what they did is they recorded uh, basically their their thoughts, like, you know, based on the conversations with Clyde, because they were friends with Clyde Barker. So, because that's... a lot of friends. Yes, he did. He knew a lot of people. And Hellraiser was bringing in, I think very smartly on his part, bringing in all these other creative people that he knew that he thought could add to this project that he's doing. And so he knew those guys and wanted them to contribute. But unfortunately, and I think uh, it wouldn't have worked as well as uh, Christopher Young's uh, score because I think it is as memorable as the movie itself. Uh, anyways, they did record a demo. They did release it, and I think it was like Hellraiser Soundscapes or something like that. My understanding is that it really wasn't a very like completely thought out thing. Like they're basically saying, you know, based on the scenes that we saw, that this is kind of how we thought. And then once we were given the green light, we'd go in and like refine everything right i would like to see an edited version with that like put into it just to see what it would kind of get a taste of what it would be like hey we could probably fix we could probably work on that i bet there's something out there that we could find that so tying back around so a lot of the people uh come out of the dog company where clive wrote directed produced performed all of these uh plays and they're really good so um I th- i'm trying to remember like uh, what all of the the names of the uh, plays were, but Doug Bradley was in it, Oliver Parker, and then I think S- Simon uh, Bamford and Nicholas Vince, who play uh, Simon Bamford is Butterball, and Nicholas Vince is the Chatterer in those movies. Yeah, they the were Cenobites. Kind of, the Cenobites. They were loosely associated with the Daw Company earlier on, uh, and apparently Clive had moved on, so he has made. Uh, like getting out of the theater phase, he did make two underground cult movies and they're just experimental. I think he was just getting the idea of working with the film medium. Then they went on to make, this, was this before then? Yep. Hellraiser. Okay. This is early eighties. This okay. is like, he was still a very young guy at this particular time. And then they had adapted two of his stories from the books of blood. So uh, looking at here. So they did, in 1985, they released Underworld, and then in 86, they did Rawhead Rex, and they're both based off of the uh, Books of Blood. And so those were the, kind of the first crack at it. The problem is, really, is that Clive Barker's imagination is so much more grand than, I think, up until recently, effects could even reproduce. Right. Like, I, yeah. Like it, just the sheer s- scale and the things that he's talking about, like, and even some of the earlier movies, like Hellraiser, thinking about uh, what it is, is really revolutionary for its time. Those makeup effects in that movie, for being, so that movie was made for $800,000. My goodness. Yeah. And, and I really just have to say, like, going off this, and I hope we were going to get into it, like, the main reason that I love Hellraiser so much and the reason that I got into it, my main interest is the practical effects that are in this movie. 
they are out of control. They're some of the best that I've ever seen, and nobody's done it like that since. No, they're really, and that really has to do with Bob Keen and uh, Image and that whole group of guys. So there was, I think initially, what I got was that it was you know founded by ten people. They're really young, and they wanted the whole concept was bringing in a fresh perspective, new blood. So uh, I was watching this thing that Bob Keen was basically saying, like, you know, like they were trying to break the mold of effects of that era. Like there were people are very stuck in a certain way of doing things and they wanted to go their own way. And when you hear like what they used condoms, so they would send these guys out. People use condoms. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the fuck that's about. Well, yeah. For makeup. You, bu- you go get condoms, okay. you wash them out, you clean them, you cut them into strips, and then you turn them into makeup. Mm. So they would send these guys out to buy cases of KY that jelly. That terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we do not advocate unprotected sex. Uh, anyways, so they... Uh, yeah, they, that's, what the, that, that's what the budget they had. They didn't go... Like, there's not, they didn't go to a makeup effects storehouse and make their own latex, they recycled things that they had access to because they were a fresh company. So you think about, like, they used condoms and Hellraiser as for makeup. Like, like that, if that was Frank and Skeleton, or not Skeleton, <laughs> but Skinless, like... Frank, yeah. Like I said when we were watching it, Attack on Titan <laughs> type <laughs> mode. If That's amazing. Yeah. Who would have ever thought that that's what it would have been? Yeah. Again, those practical effects are just out of this world. And I'll say that the first two movies for Hellraiser, and they're because they're the ones, uh, I think Image Animation did three as well. But uh, the first two are the best that the Cenobites ever looked, I think, on film, even into the modern age, like comparatively. And I don't mean to disparage Gary J. Tunacliffe, took over uh, makeup effects for, I think, Hellraiser four or five. And it just isn't as good. It looked to me from those movies, they look, they look like makeup effects as opposed to like a demon. Like my disbelief kind of goes away and I can come back to Hellraiser, the first few of them. Do you think that it maybe what could have possibly led to that would be Doug Bradley, maybe having to do this makeup so much that at some point it got to be too much? No. Uh, what happened was that, Hellraiser, I think, 4 was the last theatrically released Hellraiser movie. And what happened was that New World went bankrupt in the 90s. And Dimension, which is owned by the Weinstein brothers, they bought those properties and they bought uh, Hellraiser. And instead of reinvigorating the franchise and doing interesting things, they bastardized the franchise. And basically did a rehash of the first movie for the next five sequels, essentially. If you've watched Hellraiser 5, 6, 7, and 8, they're really... I have. Yeah. And I can tell you, I don't really... I can't remember them. But it also might be because that I probably got really drunk while watching them. That's Or it could have been that it's just completely unmemorable. They are, because they rehash... uh, They rehash the first two movies. And the problem is, like they fundamentally fail to understand what makes Hellraiser work as a franchise. So they think, oh, we're just going to redo the plot 
and then that's the thing. That's what it. That's what it was. That's why Hell you, the Hellraiser works so well is because it's a a family drama and a boogeyman comes up, and he like tears you apart, and there it is. And you really notice that after uh, Pete Atkins stops writing the franchise, Pinhead's lines are trash. And by the way, I think four of those later sequels didn't even start out as Hellraiser sequels proper. They were just adapted. It was something else, and they're like, ooh, if we throw Pinhead into the mix. Into the movie. Sexy. Something. Cash grab. something. Yeah. I mean, it's not like any other franchise has done that recently. Cloverfield. (laughs) 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 So, anyways, looping back around. So... It, it really the, the vibe that you get from the the document and, and all the people around him is that he was he was energetic. Clyde Barker was energetic. He had a lot of ideas. He was really listening to every word. You felt like you when you're in a conversation with Clyde Barker, like you were the only person alive. And I can see how like legitimately why people wanted to suck his dick. Well, yeah, and that and like he was talking to you and nothing but like grand ideas and everything that he was talking about was something that was really important it's so a big deal so he turned around and, and used that in all of his his material so a little background on clive barker so he's born in 1952 in liverpool to a middle class family so that pete atkins makes a, a like i guess a joke or a point to differentiate the fact that clive was a little better off than the rest of the crew of the dog company because he had come from a slightly better upbringing uh uh, let's see. So, and again, he he got his first foray into what he would become through theater in high school. So he met Doug Bradley in high school. So those dudes have known each other a long. That was that was time. one of the craziest things that I took away from that documentary is how long that they've known each other. Yeah. it was you know, and me coming into it not knowing all this, like I'm just thinking, okay, there's these people. They set up a movie. They got actors to play these parts. No, like he got basically what his family yeah. was into this movie and involved into it. And you think about he's known some of these people forty plus years, and they're sucking his dick now. They must. Re- he must be a cool guy. He must not be a piece of shit. I mean, that's the vibe I get. I mean. There, listen. There's some internet rumors that he had a, a really nasty uh, breakup from one of his husband, and there was some pretty nasty allegations leveled against him. But all the people that worked around him, and again, because if you think about Oliver Parker or these other guys, they haven't worked with him since the early '90s. So for to have glowing words for you know a very limited documentary, like it, it says something to the fact that he. You know, like he must have taken really taken care of and really like right. invested in those relationships. So, so there's some there's confusion as to kind of like the motivations of Doug Bradley taking the role of Pinhead. So in one documentary, he tells a story about how essentially he was offered two roles and he had like wrestled with it that he if you know if he's gonna be in a movie for the first time that they should see his face. Uh, and then the other documentary, he says, oh, it's not that much of a thing. It was like a, a, a five-second thought. I was always going to take this thing. And from my understanding is that Clive Barker designed the role for him, for him it to play. It was, like, personally catered towards him. Exactly. So you've – and then you've got – so you got Doug Bradley, Dog Group. You've got Oliver Parker, Moving Man 2. So – 
He later, interestingly enough, goes on to play uh, uh, one of the main supporting characters in another movie of his that we'll get to in a bit here. Uh, and he's a director. So he's gone on to direct other movies. So he directed... So Oliver Parker, who I'm talking about, went on to direct Othello, An Ideal Husband, Dorian Gray, and Johnny English, Reborn. Yes. A little, a little Oliver Bean or whatever the fuck his name is. This is, I, this is the guy with the eyebrows, right? Yeah. Yeah, the eyebrow guy. Yes. So he's gone on to do other things to be very... I would say he has a career. He's not like... Dude Moving Mattress, number two. Went on to direct movies and have a career in Hollywood. I, you know, shit. Like, the prospects of, like, where he was from being Moving Man 2 to where he ended up, I'd, you know, that's it's pretty cool. Uh, and then again, you've got... At one point in time, I moved a mattress, and here I am now. <laughs> so, uh, it, it could work for us, it can work for you. Yeah, damn. I mean, more people need to move mattresses in their lives. I think that's the key to things. Uh, so, anyways, so... That's sort of the scramble genesis of Hellraiser. So, and really, Clive wanted to do something himself. He was not happy with Rawhead Rex. I've seen it. It's a fucking trash movie. Like, people have, like, gone back and tried to be like, oh, it's not so... Like, it's a fucking trash movie. When they were talking about it in the documentary, it made me really want to watch it. Dude, like, to watch a bad movie... We could watch a bad. That's well, and this is not knowing that it was bad or anything. Just the way they were talking about it, it really mm-hmm. got me interested in what was going on with it. Because the thing, the core is whatever Clive Barker is doing is really interesting. Like he's actually like, like where the fuck do these things come from? But really, of course, I should probably just read this the short story. You should because it's in the collection, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. So he was not happy with the first. A couple of movies that he that were adapted from his work, so he's like, oh, "I'm going to do it myself, essentially." And of course, he's going to do it himself, and he did. And that's where Hellraiser comes from. What's interesting is, I'm curious to know because he, from that point, did not direct very many movies after that, as far as as projects that he has directed. And I've, I've got a he's directed four features in his career, and that's it. Which is crazy. You think about a dude who puts all this time and energy into breaking into it and and saying, you know what, my vision needs to be accurately represented. A lot of his works have been adapted. The vampires one? Vampires. Vampires. No. No. No vampires. He's not written about, well, at least not mainly written about vampires. He That's not really his jam. And I'm thankful for it because Anne Rice can have that genre. That's cool. That's fine. Uh, he's... Really, a lot of, like, so the overarching themes of Clive Barker really are, uh, they're going to be religion, grotesque religion, sexuality, and then some sort of deviation of When I think of religion, grotesque comes to mind immediately, definitely. And and he really nails, because I think there's something about Clive where he's able to see an underlying, I don't know if it's a motivation... Or because, like, essentially, like, when you take communion, it's cannibalism. Because you're, this body is my bread. You're taking a piece Eating. of, yes. and then this wine is my blood. And I think he really honed in on that kind of aspect of religion where, you know, it is grotesque. When you think about what you're doing, taking communion, it's cannibalism. You're taking, and then he just fucking runs with that shit. And, takes it to the nth degree. Oh, holy shit. 
So he's mostly known for being a horror writer, but the reality is that's a very brief period of his career. He focused on horror in the beginning part of his career, which was you know the the eighties, the early eighties, up until the you know late eighties. That's the best time to be doing that kind of thing. The best. So it worked out well there, right? But. That is, I mean, he's really moved away from it really quickly. I don't know that it was ever really in his, uh, like, I think maybe he found it limiting at a certain point. Because everything that I've read since then, there are horror elements to a lot of his novels. But they're really, it's used to convey a certain feeling and not necessarily like that's the point. So... He wrote the Books of Blood in, let's see here. So 84 to 85 was the Books of Blood. He wrote his first proper novel, or released, I should say. I bet this dude wrote tons of shit before he ever released anything. Uh, well, yeah, and that was another thing that I got out of the documentary. One of the guys who was talking about Clive Barker's writing said that every 10 or 11 pages that he would write, he would throw 10 away. So it's like, how do you get somewhere if you're throwing that away? Shit, there's no way he'd write 11 and throw 10 away like there's, there's a lot of s and the d going yeah. on but yeah. i mean it's just like if he was they said he was constantly writing though he yeah. was writing all the time yeah. so we can at least say this he wrote a lot of shit he wrote a lot of shit so and they're not subtle like small uh books a lot of these so the first proper uh novel that he released in 1985 was the damnation game so i will that, say that sounds like my life yeah. That's the title of the book of And my life. you know what? This could be your life. So Damnation Game, and I'd say a lot of this, Clive Barker spends a lot of time world build, building. So in the first part, like I'd say quarter to half the book, sometimes it's, you're trudging. He's, he's building the, what the normal world is so that in the other part of the story, he could tear Just it apart. Tear it right down. Tear it right down and totally shock you with what's going on. So Damnation Game starts off mundane. A dude gets released from prison. He ends up working for a rich dude. and Which would never happen. Which would never happen. And he gets involved with this rich man's daughter. and Which probably would happen. Which probably would happen. You got it. And you don't really understand why he was you know, hired. But you get the idea. You really, he really sells the point of like how mundane and terrible this person's life is. He just really sells like suburban life in a lot of the first parts of his novels. And then just the absolute gothic, fantastical, horrifying shit that happens. So if I remember correctly, I think the main antagonist is the mammalian. The mammalian? I think I'm saying that right. The mammal. The, ma- the mammal. And... Essentially, this rich dude is running away from this guy that he met. I think it's First World War. He's running away from this dude. It's not even the internet. It's not and even. we're having this shit going on. Yeah. And essentially, he is like this immortal dude that's coming after him. And he does some shit to people that's fucked up. And he's got like this... The Mamoulian has one like sidekick guy that you end up learning that is like a child murderer and cannibal. And his favorite thing to do is to slice children very thinly sliced and then eat them. Like he cures it like dried beef. Oh. 
Yeah. This is 1985. Salt this shit up and eat yeah. it later. Yeah, yeah. And like in the novel, like he feeds it to these people, like feeds it to the main characters as like sustenance. And it's like veal. And they're like enjoying they're it. They're probably just like, oh, this shit's great. Oh, this is great. Well, yeah. And like Thanks, he, World War One yeah. era person for giving me this food. Well, he's not. He's modern era, but the Mamoulian. Oh, okay, so this is much later, but yeah. they're from. The Mamoulian is from, and this old dude is from that wartime era. Okay. And like basically. And again, it's it's a whole it's a complex flat series of flashbacks, and you you start to understand number one how the situation happened, number two who the Mamoulian is, how he became what he is, and basically he's immortal, and uh, he has the ability to resurrect dead people into his service. And I think what the what it was, if I remember correctly, is that he this dude was allowed to live but then would have to enter into indentured servitude to the Mamoulian for all of eternity oh. until his body rotted into nothingness. It's really bringing it back to the industrial revolution with oh, indentured servitude. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the scope and the... Or is that just like the fancy term for slavery? white person slave? Well, you know, indentured servitude typically lasts like seven years, I think. I think that was the typical run of indentured servitude. I could be wrong. Someone will probably, I'm sure someone will correct me on what I've said about yes. whiskey, but whatever. So anyways, it's, you know, it's not a, a thin book. It's, it's a, uh, it's like a 300 some page novel. It's really meaty and it really draws you in. He just has this ability to write something, describe a world and then turn it on its head. So that's 1985. He wrote the, the short story, the Hellbone heart or novella, excuse me. Uh, there are some differences between the movie and the novella, uh, just as far as like the relations go between some of the characters. And uh, this is where we're going to digress a little bit because I've been thinking about this. So I've been thinking about putting the show together, talking about Hellraiser and thinking about Pinhead and, and that sort of thing. So in the novel, it describes Pinhead. And basically it's saying he's got scars running across his head and that they're like evenly spaced and that in between each intersecting line, there's a pin driven into the bone. So if you look at where all of the pins are located in the makeup effect, you start to wonder what the fuck. So he's got pins through his cheek. So where do those pins go to? Yeah, which bone? Which bone? So it's not- And we're not talking about like high cheekbone, like handsome boy. That's where the thing's going in. It's going into just skin. The middle of the cheek, it's there attached. Or it would just go right through and not into a bone. Into a bone. And it's not angled, so I would understand if if it was like angled to going into the jaw. or. But it's not. It's just straight in. We're making like arrow moves with our hands. And yes, we're doing arrow gestures up and down. And it started to really fucking bug me, like looking at the makeup and understanding. like the, And that's my only beef. Really, everything is amazing, but like when you think about it, think about this. So these pins are driven to the bone, but when in the movie you see Pinhead speak, his the pins move. The move. Yeah, they do, and that kind of weirded me out too. Because if it were if we we're being accurate to how it's described, those pins would be fixed, and his flesh would be moving around, around it, yes. the pins, which would be fucking horrifying. Which would be awesome if I we could make that happen. Make that happen. You know, I there has been a long gestating. It's like yeah, the people who have the halo 
on after they yeah. break their neck or whatever. Right. Exactly. That shit doesn't. It those pins aren't supposed to move. So the lines make sense if those are like where the pins are traveling yeah. as he's speaking. But a pin through the cheek, like again, enjoy the movie. Yeah, and it's like a, especially the pin upper lip. Ones, yeah, that those when he's talking, they're moving all over the place, and that was if that was driven, yes, like straight into the bone, it would be going anywhere, and that would probably affect his speech. But whatever, we aren't going to get that. We aren't going to get that picky about it. Well, we? I don't know that it would. If there were open wounds, maybe, and it was, it would be fine because the idea, and this is where ultimately, like, I really get like bugged by Gary J. Tunicliffe's makeup effects because. They look, it looks like a makeup effect as opposed to like someone who's Something got gaping wounds yes. and there's these, this horrifying like scarification that's happened or this like trauma to this being. And also what doesn't make any sense to me. And again, thinking about this. So does he have blue blood or red blood? Because based on the makeup, it's conflicting. So the head. This is, yes, this is very true. So on the head. Are the are those lines supposed to be scars or an open wound? Because if it's an open wound, then it's blue. But then on his, but his chest, titties, his, his titties be bleeding red blood. Bleeding red blood. Because in Hellraiser two, what the uh, Doctor Chenard gets injected with this blue shit and he turns blue. Now is that just that character, or is it that's how Cenobites are made? See, so that's what I want. How is a Cenobite made? <laughs> so. It is interesting because if you look at like Freddy Krueger or Jason, like they are reflective of, I suppose, trauma that's happened to them. But it's like you can imagine a, a burned man or a drowned man with like rotted skin. Like there, there, it isn't necessarily like a a really foreign concept. Seeing like, and this is where I think Clive Barker, his imagination, like in where Hellraiser is different is like, you know, demons up to that point were horned or like the exorcist, like jump scares. And they're really kind of like not intelligent, not, you know, they're, they're just aren't really that interesting. You know, I think one track killing machine, maybe type things. And you, you know, Freddie had his, his quips, you know, that made him interesting of his, of that era. But it kind of got old. And, I mean, I do, like, I really like Nightmare in Elm Street, the franchise. And I think Robert Englund is fantastic in that role. Uh, and I think, like, because we did have a remake of that movie. And it just wasn't the same thing with What's-His-Nuts from Watchmen playing him. Like, it just wasn't the same thing. Uh, so he definitely, like, he is that character as much as Doug Bradley is Pinhead. But, like, seeing that, like, leather-clad, mutilated... Uh, like, like sort of priests, sort of goth, but they're demons, and they're really impartial. The thing I really love about Pinhead, and uh, like for me, one of the things that really set him apart from all the other uh, like horror villains is that he was intelligent. He wasn't a mindless like killing thing. And, and even now, like, like versus Japanese horror movies, where like The Grudge and those, they're kind of like phantom unstoppable forces right that don't reason with you they just you you step upon it and you're a victim of it whereas you could like pinhead wants and the cinemas want to talk to you they want to understand your motivations they're gonna fuck with you hard and 
they kind of just seem like it's their job. Like what I love about Pinhead is like, he's almost like bored of like being there. He's like, why the fuck did you bring me out of like, whatever the fuck yes. I, I was making the nihilism tea is hard. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say my favorite part of what I did see in Leviathan, since I didn't finish it is when they were talking about Pinhead, um, comparatively to other horror, you know, I guess I could say icons at the time is he wasn't going for jump scares. Nope. He wasn't the unstoppable killer. He was the person who commanded a room. When he came in, you know, if he said anything, you listened to it and you just didn't question it and you were scared. So that was that's also really cool to me is he doesn't he doesn't really do anything. No. He doesn't do anything, but yet he is a scary figure. What I think was interesting and I think another movie kind of st- and I don't I don't know if like it's a, a, a co-inspiration, but if you look at like a character like Hannibal Lecter, that's the only other character that I really think is similar. I can I can definitely see that. I never thought of that before, but now I can totally see that. Yeah, like they're they're elegant, they're intelligent, it's, and you it, don't know what they're gonna do, right? Because either one, they might kill you, or they might not, or you, you could be their friend, even. Yeah. And you have no idea... I could be Pinhead's friend. You could be Pinhead's friend. Like, what is this no pleasure <laughs> without pain? Let's I, explore the depths of this together. Ooh, Give I, me the puzzle box and we'll dive down there. Well, you can have the puzzle box. There it is. We have a puzzle box right here, yeah. actually. So I did, being the, the ever, like, the total nerdgasm, like, fan that I am, like, my dream as a grown-up like to be like when i grow up i'm gonna have the puzzle box buying all the merchandise the shirts the posters and all that shit like that's easy but like getting a puzzle box is like the like the greatest achievement like for me and i and i have one i bought one it's reasonable and again we were talking about this earlier i give it a c as far as reproduction the the brass is wonderful it's completely accurate but it doesn't necessarily have the craftsmanship that uh it would be like a proper movie replica it would be the one that you hold yeah for Uh, like a close shot but you know what i you know i'm very proud and the great thing about this is like if you actually look into the box so there's there are illustrations in the designs so he's he's showing me the the best side of the box right yeah it looks really great so there is the engineer in the box there is a face being torn apart in the box and so this was inspired by like sort of asian and sort of african inspirations so like uh when they were giving simon says uh rest in peace because he died of cancer uh he they kind of wanted like an ageless sort of theme to it so like you know it was taking place and I don't know that they had like a specific era, but they, you know, thought like, well, you know, it was during the early British conquest. So they were like, part of it goes to Asia, part of it goes to Africa. And so, so the design, but it was, they always knew that it was designed by a guy n- named Le Merchant. And he was like the, like 17th century. So they knew, like, they knew that of that time, Britain had access and had been in these certain parts of the world so that it would, it would be appropriate, or sorry, France, because Le Marchand is French in the in canon. He uh, 
So he they he would have had access to these other cultural. What movie was it that they were talking about that? Hellraiser four. I was gonna say it was a later one, but I yep. didn't. Of course, I didn't really remember it. But yes, I so remember that now that you started talking about it, definitely. they incorporated those ethnic sort of vibes, and it really like like as much as Pinhead is a iconic figure, you see Pinhead and you're just like you instantly know. You see the puzzle box is the same thing, and you don't see that shit anywhere. Where have you seen such an identifiable, unique object? in pop culture or horror culture, whatever you want to go into where you're like, that's fucking rad. And what is it? Cause it's just, it's cool. Like I, the designs on it, like, I don't know. I want to get it and start fooling around with it and start some shit. Yeah. My face ripped apart. Get it right ripped off. And, and also which movie was it that they went to someone's house and he had multiple two puzzle boxes. Number two. Okay. So we can move into that. So, uh, number one, uh, they so it was being made, and you know it was put together on a shoestring budget. New World saw the dailies of it and knew that they had something special. And I think as soon as you saw, like you see photographs of Pinhead, you're like, "That's fucking awesome!" That's fucking awesome. So they had been given an extra bit of money to tack on the actual led the scene that happens twenty minutes in, which is the Frank birth. So interestingly. They had, what they had done is they had filmed a shot basically where Frank just emerges out of a fucking wall. So the brick wall opens up and he just kind of drops out and then you just cut and he's like, I am. That would be fucking lame. A tragedy. So they just went and shot this shit. Like they had all moved on to other stuff and they had looped back around and shot, I think, again, one of the most amazing reverse cinematography uh, scenes in completely amazing that is by far the best practical effects so you think about a a low budget 80s horror movie and you think of even modern effects and yeah i mean i listen i could tell that it's an effect but i'm totally drawn into it like it is believable like i'm not I don't think about when I'm watching it, I don't think like, ooh, this looks weird or something like if it were CG blood, like in what we see now or something like that. It's a totally believable, like it's a maybe a stylized thing might be the most that I go into when I watch that scene, but it is totally, you're not taken out of the movie with that scene. It is totally believable and horrifying. You're not taken out. You are drawn into it more than you were before. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's really, that movie, that scene was just tacked on. It was just an afterthought. I'm so fucking glad that that happened. Going into it, not knowing all the stuff that you do, and that being probably my favorite part of the entire movie, I am so happy that that got made because that part right there is the greatest shit ever. Yeah. Uh, So that was tacked on. I think they had a sense that it was going to be a thing. They released it. And to general, like, I I wish that I could under, like, my aunt was the person that was able to experience that movie and truly understand how groundbreaking it was when it came out. Like, I wish I could have that feeling. Like, I wish I could experience, like, how different a movie this was. Like, it was game-changing as far as, effects go as far as how how movies are made and you think about the budget that it was made on like 
$800,000. That ain't shit. Even for then, that is considered low fucking budget. And they pulled off in a, like an iconic uh, movie with that. So they The upper echelon of ooh. cinema. <laughs> as, I like to requ- as I like to refer to it as. So, uh, sequel, quickly greenlit. And interestingly enough, and I don't know why this is, Clive Barker chooses not to be uh, the director or writer of that movie. And I'm not sure if he didn't have... I think probably more accurately, and, and again, I don't know. I think maybe what happened was that at that point in time in his life, he was already kind of moving past... Uh, what horror could do for him. I think he was starting to really expand into fantasy, which is really like epic fantasy or erotic fantasy is really like, I think the more accurate erotic fantasy, dude, like there's five gold for an arcane hand job. Yeah. Type oh erotic yeah. Fantasy. <laughs> no, like do this magical thing, get your face ripped off. And then like, you're going to ejaculate like, it's he, everything that he does, except for his kids' mo- novels. So, by by the way, he writes children's books. This is completely new to me. I had no idea. Yeah, we, we can get to that. So, uh, I think he was already kind of moving past that. And so, I think what happened is that he went from doing Hellraiser and then started doing Nightbreed. But we won't get there yet because it's not chronologically accurate, even though we are not abiding by any kind of chronology yeah, at fucking yeah. all. But I'm going to attempt to stick to it. So Hellraiser 2 quickly greenlit, uh, and I believe it comes out in 1988. Now, this is my personal favorite Hellraiser movie, and I think that's controversial amongst some folks. I do like the fact that you know the first movie uh, broke ground in a lot of things as far as effects go. It's a very intimate story, but I think they knew that it had to be an intimate movie and kind of bland as far as the scale goes for the budget. They knew they had to go with a low-budget movie, so the scope was very narrow. And it's it's very effective. I'm not, like, we saw, we recently watched it together. Yes, we did, yep. Uh, and it's still very, every time I watch it, I'm like, this is a, like, I'm not, like, it's a good movie. It stands on its own, I think, you know, better than a lot of other movies do. And I also like that it feels almost like the Raid 2, where it jumps from, here is the first movie, we're going right into the next movie. Mm-hmm. So, number two, written by Pete Atkins. So, Pete, Peter Atkins is, uh, again, one of Clive Barker's dog company friends. So, they're close friends. They're in a theater company together. Peter Atkins... Uh, also was in like some new wave band apparently some shit so that was like tight i like new wave yeah new Wave. it's like this dude like legitimately i want to meet this dude i actually i do too after watching leviathan i want to meet him he was like the happiest i don't know if i should say that i'm not a happy person myself (laughs) no but he had energy he He had had excitement he was really passionate about what he was talking about yeah and i get really passionate about some of my interests and i feel like there is something there that he is like i want to talk to this person so you think about the reasons what i why i like hellbound is because of pete atkins the lines he gives pinhead they're again like hannibal lecter is the only other like character i can really think of like just 
that like he really. I think, I'm so glad that you said that. I never put those two together, but yeah. I totally see it now that yeah. you mentioned that. Elegant, like I think Pete Atkins understood the character and then expanded on the mythology. Because if you think about what, so Clyde Barker only wrote about Hellraiser like four years ago, Scarlet Gospels. So he wrote Hellbound Heart, Hellraiser, and then. 30 years later, he did Scarlet Gospels. And that's it. So everything that we owe a lot of, like, to the Hellraiser mythology past or before the shitty dark days of the of the movie are all to Peter Atkins. So he writes, he really describes what hell is, Leviathan, all, you know, uh, the, uh, the Doctor character, the furthering of Julia in Hellraiser 2, like the skinless Julia. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah that's some good shit uh and just the mythology of of the box that's all really um thanks to him because he fleshes out who pinhead is what's in the box just a dick in the box <laughs> <laughs> so he he fleshes out who pinhead is where he comes from what his motivations are so world war one dude serving i don't know if he's serving in northern africa or whatever it is another world war one thing yeah I, I think it makes sense of that generation like those dudes their parents are from the world war ii british era sort of thing and i think there's this sort of like reverence or like under trying to understand their parents that they always kind of like hearken back to and so you know they reference that or talk about it i don't know and that's just my conjecture as far as those dudes in that that era of of people but um so he uh he fleshes out so to speak (laughs) why i like that yeah uh the 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 hellraiser mythology what we know of, of of pinhead and again what hell is what leviathan is and where the box comes from, all that shit is owed to Peter Atkins. Like that's and the best lines are Pete Atkins writes. Like, granted, Pinhead has some spectacular lines in Hellraiser One, to be sure. Like they're really fucking good. He punches it up because in Hellraiser Two, he's much more of a featured character. And what I like about Hellraiser Two is that he is kind of impartial. He's not the monster of the movie. Once again. No, he isn't. He's, he's and he never has been. Well again, once we get once Dimension gets involved, he starts to there's a whole thing. Eh, yeah, it's a little different. Actually, once um Dimension buys it, they they just basically try to rape and pillage the franchise. And Hellraiser three is a a markedly like uh, poor entry into the series, and that's the beginning of the end. But I'll, I'll get, I'll get to it. So, uh, Hellraiser two. So it revolves around the immediate aftermath of Hellraiser one. It's like literally just picks up a moment or two later, and she Kirsty wakes up in an insane asylum, and just happens to uh, be in an insane asylum where a dude has a fetish for hell and the puzzle boxes. So I think she comes in. No. A bone demon steals the box at the end of the first movie. So there's a couple of interesting things that never happen again in the franchise ever. So bone demon, 
it never pops up ever again in any other movie. Never referenced. The bone demon doesn't yeah. pop up. Yeah, it doesn't pop. You got it. You got it. You know where I was going with that. I. And then it was going there no matter what. Yeah. And then the engineer. Engineer never makes another appearance or referenced in any other movie ever again. Can I take this sideways really quick? Go ahead, do it. Like you talking about the second Hellraiser really just made me instantly go to the second Predator movie. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, okay, in the first Predator movie, we get this, we get this thing, but it's in the second Predator movie that we really get all the technology that we know that they use yep, and all the mythos and everything else that goes along with it. So yep. I feel like those are just like riding real close Listen, parallels with each Predator other. Predator 2 is dramatically underrated. I really like that movie. I am so we're really we're really getting sideways here. Like really bad. <laughs> but we're talk all of a sudden now we're talking about something that I am just like hyper passionate about is Predator 2 is a lot of people disregard it and they say it's trash, but I say Predator 2 is the perfect fucking sequel because it is so different from the first one. Yes, I agree. And I will fight on the internet or with my fists. Anyone <laughs> who thinks You will fist someone over this. I will fist I will <laughs> I won't even spit on my hand first and fist them over Predator 2 because that is a great fucking sequel and I'll just leave it at that, and yeah. we'll continue on. But we'll continue on. I, I do, I see parallels here between yep. the two. Yeah, yeah. I, so, again, expanding the mythology, giving Pinhead more screen time. Not a huge amount more screen time, but every scene that he's in, he just has these great lines. He steals the frame. And it's never said that he is, like, the main Cenobite. You just fucking know it. You just know it. He's by his presence. You're like, this fucking dude is in charge. And what I like about the first two movies is that, well, at least the female Cenobite, she talks, has input, whereas further down the line, they're just kind of there in the background. They're, yeah. they're his lackeys. Whereas like the first two, I don't necessarily get the sense that like he is, you know, master over slaves. It's like, they definitely answer to him, but there's something going on. Like, I feel like there's something going on with all of those characters and you want to just want to know more. And it's perfect because you don't. And, but it does go into what Leviathan is, what hell looks like, which you think about it, what did hell look like prior to those movies is a fucking fiery pit of despair and brimstone and very like biblical and kind of cheesy and not really interesting and he just took all of those things. Well, some people wouldn't think that hell is interesting, but people like you and I definitely would. <laughs> there, there's a little, I guess, you could say there's a little difference there. Sure. But, you know, if you think, even if you think about religious fanatics, I think they they think passionately about what hell is because they want to be able to describe torture, right? And I think, and here's the difference between previous people. Clive's imagination is so much more grandiose and vivid than other jabronis who are like, oh, it's fire <laughs> yes. and it's hot and it's you don't want to go there. It's bad. It's bad. 
And then that's it. You're like, well, what is the depth of despair? What is torture? What is all like? He really. Yeah. Do you know? No, you don't fucking no, you know. Don't know. Because there, you would have no idea. So everyone's idea of what hell was would be from Dante. You know. Right. So Dante's Inferno that cemented the religious idea of what hell was for hundreds of years. And that was the Hellraiser of its day, if you will, even though technically it was a, like it's supposed to be a religious. It actually was a re- kind of a religious text. He was actually describing what, in his mind, was hell, which it's very interesting. I suggest reading it, but it's a fucking chore. Reading, because that was written as a Italian comedy, I believe. So comedies in the Middle Ages weren't necessarily in the comedies that we would describe them today. It was because it was a specific format that was referred to as a comedy. And if you classically, everything was written in Latin and then Dante's Inferno was written in Italian and it was really controversial of its day. So, uh, it was new, it was exciting. It described seven layers of hell and blah, blah, blah. And that was the first shakeup of what hell was. Because previous to there was no imagination to hell. It was just suffering. And that's what people thought. Because the Bible doesn't really give you a full breadth of what hell was. And then so between Dante and Clive Barker, no one had really shaken up what that could be or mean. Everyone just played off of Dante's interpretation of what hell was. And he's saying, no, it could be a completely different thing. And one of Clyde Barker's things about hell, because he just, in his other novels, so if we go into the book of the art and other things, is, uh, or even some of the comic books, is that Leviathan is about order and life is chaos. So hell it really is, is. Yeah. So hell is about being ordered, regimented, and having, making sense of things. And basically like fascism, essentially. And then life is chaotic. It's... It's full of green. You never know where it goes. And there's that struggle between, you know, the good and evil is chaos versus disorder, but life is disorder versus the other way around. So he kind of flips those themes around, which makes it so much more interesting. And again, so when you look at Pinhead and Hellraiser and Leviathan, like they're so much more interesting than, okay, I love The Exorcist. It's a fucking great movie. It's a slow ass burner of a movie, but Linda Blair is fucking great in that movie truth and be told truth. i have never seen the exorcist holy fuck we're gonna see it and we're gonna do a review of that movie. all right we will watch it and we'll do a feature episode on it yeah. definitely uh again i'll play the person who has no idea what they're talking about in that particular i have discussion. some interesting anecdotes and things about that movie anyways because i really like that movie but uh anyway but that's that movie still plays into biblical ideas of hell where clive barker just goes well, we're just going to leave that aside and we're going to do something completely different. And Peter Atkins takes the initial... Because I think, like, having known Clive forever, having worked in his theater company, having performed in his plays and been part of the... And, and apparently, my understanding is that the first people that read the Books of Blood were Doug Bradley and Peter Atkins. Like, they were the first people to see what he was doing. Right, yeah, I remember them saying that, yeah. So... I think the perfect person to pick up the mantle and move it forward is Pete Atkins. And and I will say the concepts that Hellraiser three further explore 
and then Hellraiser 4 go on to do. Like, no other movie in the Hellraiser franchise has been as ambitious as Hellraiser 4. And I know a lot of people hate that movie, but just for the sheer, like, hey, we're going to take it way, like, we're going to take this thing and, like, go big with it. Like, it's it's amazing. Like, it, I feel like that's the last proper sequel to the franchise. Since I can't remember, has there been a Hellraiser in space yet? <laughs> there is, was, right? That was Hellraiser in space. Ah, oh, yes. Quick, quick synopsis. Hellraiser 4 has been referred to as Hellraiser in space. It takes place in three timelines, no less. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's been, it has honestly been so long since I've seen these, and I've only watched them once. Wow. So I'm really a piece of shit when it comes to what we're really talking about, so I apologize for that. But I've sat through so many like like uh, marathon viewings of Hellraiser with other people because I'm like, you're going to see every fucking one, and we're going to do it in one sitting. I like that. Yeah, that's it's. I really wish that we could have gone through all of Berserk like that. We still can. We still we can. can. I really feel like that. Like I did show you the movie. We should go back and do the series first, then do the movie, then do the new series. We we definitely could do that. I'm all but for that's it. That's for another time. That's another time. That's another thing. So, anyways, Hellraiser two, uh, written by Pete Atkins, directed by Tony Randall. So Tony Randall was a New World executive prior to that. So he was New in, World Order. New World Order. Yeah. So. He was involved in the first Hellraiser movie. I don't know what the impetus was for him directing it. I think he like got tired of doing what he was doing, being an executive, doing ex- executive things, whatever they... The what, what is the executive thing? <laughs> Making executive I gotta, decisions. I, I got to return some videotapes. I do have to return some videotapes. <laughs> I, I can't fuck what... around with this at all. I got to go right <laughs> uh, now. I think that's what they mostly do. Uh, so he directed it. And I think he did an admirable job. If you really... Again, I Hellraiser Two is my favorite, just for where it's a beautiful segue or a, a addition to the to the mythos. It pays compliment to the original movie by having Kirsty still in it, but then expands. So, and then I think the characters are interesting, and I think Kirsty is better in the second movie. I completely agree with that. In the first one, the first absolutely Kirsty is with the that. weakest. And there's nothing wrong with the actress that plays uh, Kirsty in the movies. Like I, she's completely like I, I sell. It. I just think she was poorly written because Clive Parker, being a gay man, I don't know how well he can write a 20 year old heterosexual woman. I think he would be able to write that better than he did <laughs> because of that. But I guess it didn't turn out that it way. It did not turn out that way. So Kirsty is poorly. Not as well fleshed out as she should I have wouldn't, been. I don't know if I would say poorly written. Maybe just poor, not as well executed as the True. rest of the cast. In but in Hellraiser two, she shines like she is firm. And what I like about yeah. it, if you think about the like the feminism movement and things like that, what's interesting is that the teenage girl is the hero of the movies. Whereas previous to all the other movies, it was always the teenagers getting killed. She's the hero of the movie. And in Hellraiser 2, she's the only one that really understands what's happening and knows what to do. Right. But sort of knows what to do, but not what to do. So, uh, but she survives. She perseveres through it and is ultimately, like, all the other people that typically would be the heroes, like, dude from Aliens 2, he gets dead. 
Yeah. You know who I'm talking about? Kyle, I think is his name. The character name. He is one of the guys in Aliens. So he goes from Aliens to Hellraiser 2. That's tight. Yeah. It's like there's a lot of cross. Let's, let's go to one of my most favorite things ever to another one of yeah. my favorite things. Yeah, so he goes from I think Aliens to Hellraiser 2. And he's the, one of the, the the supporting psychologist. Actually, it's never clearly explained what the fuck he is, I think, in that movie. He's somehow working with the main Dr. Chenard, who is brilliantly played, I think. Uh, I, you know, fuck, I can't remember his name and stab me in, in the face because I love him as someone will correct Pompey us Magnus and be really angry, I'm Rome. sure. So he plays, so it, no, like the series Rome. Yeah, the series room. He plays Pompey Magnus, and he's great. Why can't, why can't I fucking remember that? I watched through all of that. Yeah. And I watched through all of it, and I wasn't drunk. So oh. I should remember that. You should remember it. Anyways, he's, so he's Dr. Chenard in this movie. He's much younger, much thinner. And he's thoroughly convincing. And again, I, there's not really any weak links in Hellraiser 2. I think it's well acted. It's well executed. It's the same level of uh effects and the caliber of effects and julia really she's the main character of both movies and she's she so, is yeah but in the second movie much much more yeah and i think like she really comes into her own in hellraiser 2 and i think that's a really interesting think about it every other fucking like actual villain is some dude who's mindless and stupid which sure whatever She's actually interesting. And fucking skinless her seduces Dr. Chenard. Like, I got no skin, but you're going to want to fuck me. Like, that's some pretty impressive shit. And then seduces him into becoming a Cenobite. I mean, if you think of it, though. If you can think of it, someone's into it. Someone's into skinless people. So, she just knew her audience and worked with it. That's very true. And the depraved world of Clive Barker. Yes. That's what this guy was. And into. it's perfect because like he's obsessed with skin skinned people. And again, I think like if you read some of his novels and you read like having him not he's the executive producer of this movie. Like he I think is in charge of like the themes and making sure that it fits within his construct of what he wants. But he's not the one writing this stuff. He's not the one directing it. He's there like supporting it. Because I think he's in preparation for Nightbreed at that point. Nightbreed. Nightbreed's fucking great. Listen, we'll get to that. So, uh, again, it's you get to see Leviathan. You get to see Pinhead. And the infamous scene where he's in the doctor's gown with the, the mask over his head. So, I do believe that they finally uncovered footage of that movie. Or of that scene, excuse me. Uh, but, like, it just wasn't... Apparently, it just was really chachi and looked like shit. So they took a still of it, which is badass. Like, because it's on the back. If you get Hellbound, it's a production still on the back of that movie. And you're like, where the fuck is this? Where the the fuck is the scene? But it just apparently was so shitty. Because apparently, how, as I understand it. Say apparently again. Apparently. Thank you. you. Apparently. Mm. Uh, uh, What happened was, like, Kirsty was running looked and saw a male and female doctor and they were supposed to morph into 
the female Cenobite and Pinhead, but they couldn't get the transition right, so it just looked like shit. So they chopped it eventually. And I would just think, do look, see them one way, look back, look, and then they're Cenobite. I, I, it's, you know what? I wasn't there. I wasn't, I wasn't there. The I movie. wasn't doing the things in 1988 or 87 or whatever the fuck it was. It's just, you know, whatever. And I think, I'm not sure if it was released or not, but I know that they, it was eventually found. So a lot of this stuff was lost forever, my understanding. And they went into the, because of fans, fan outcry and just support, were able to uncover all this stuff. And again, you look at Leviathan, you look at directors kind of like Nightbreed, it's fan outcry that really got all this stuff moving. But we'll move on to that. So Leviathan came out in 1988. It was, I think, a perfect sequel. It took what made the first movie successful and expanded on it, and it was respectful, and it was just the right amount of everything you needed. Then we move on to the next movie, which in reality is Nightbreed. So that is the second movie or third movie, depending on what. I'm not really sure. As layperson, as I have to say that I preferred the first Hellraiser movie to the second. It's fair. It's fair. I'm sure. Give me your reasons. What are the... It appealed to me more. Basically, that's all it really boils down to. I thought the second one was just maybe like, I'm trying a little too hard, but I do have to say, it has been a while since I've seen it. And I just may not have the appreciation that I should have for it. So it's hard to I say. should revisit it. You should revisit it. And then on a future episode, I can really give my feelings as to what I think of the two. Yeah. I know that it's sort of controversial amongst Hellraiser fans, like the debate versus one versus two. I think they're equally great. I just think the scope of the first movie is so narrow. It's uh, limited to one house. It's limited to one house and a group of like a few people, like three people, four people maybe. Uh, it's a great, it works on all levels. It's fine. It works. But it was specifically designed and produced with a small budget in mind to get across concepts of Clive Barker to a larger, it's, it was supposed to be an introduction to a larger theme of what Clive Barker is. And then for whatever reason, he didn't want to direct or write the second movie. I don't know what those reasons were. Here's your inter- introduction to the CBU. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the CBU. We'll see where it goes from here. Yeah, we'll see what goes from here. So, uh, he he does he ultimately chooses not to do it and i don't i don't know if he was forced out of it we don't know these the re- hollywood reasoning behind shit that happens true hollywood story yeah we aren't the people doing that show yeah we're not no so i think it's a very serviceable first serviceable as far as sequels go if you compare again predator 2 is a great sequel but how many sequels do you think match the caliber of their originator uh, of the source material. I mean, there is a few. I wouldn't say that Predator 2 is better than the first Predator, but everyone, I'm sure, in the world will agree. Well, maybe not. The Terminator 2. Oh, I agree. Is better than Terminator. Way better. I feel like Terminator 2 is what Terminator 1 should have been if he had the budget. That's what I think. It's like Evil Dead 1 versus evil dead 2 evil dead 2 is just a, a straight up remake of the first movie which is a remake of the college i movie. i would consider army of darkness 
Evil Dead 2. It is, technically. Yes. So, Chronologically, yeah. it is. Yeah. Anyways, I digress. As sequels the, go, in, in a general sense, it it's a, it's a hard balance to make between servicing the continuation of a story, adding something new to a story, to a new level, and then it, it, it fitting in some sort of way. And a lot of uh, sequels either just totally ape the first movie that they're a sequel to, and it doesn't, it's shit. And people, I think a lot of people in charge of making sequels miss the point of what the magic of whatever it is that they're doing. It really works a lot better in video games than it does movies. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, not universally, but yeah. I, I think I could think of more. There would be Mortal Kombat 2. is <laughs> better right. than Mortal Kombat 1. Resident Evil 2. Resident Evil 2? Fuck. Yeah, that's I a, fucking love that game. Samurai a, Showdown 2. Much better than Samurai Showdown 1. Indeed. Street Fighter 2 is infinitely better than Fighting Street. Or what, <laughs> and a lot of people are like, what? Yeah, they won't. A lot of people don't know about that. Yeah. Anyways. Totally way off topic. So Hellraiser 2, you know, again, directed by Tony Randall, written by Peter Atkins. Chris uh, Young comes back, does the score again, and he does an even more grandiose theme. And I think we have to consider the the sheer talent of everyone coming and working in these movies. There's still Hellraiser 2 is still a low-budget movie, but the talent and the passion that comes in to making right. it happen... Yeah. The score is amazing. The effects stand up even now. The you know I would almost say that some, not all, but some of the effects are better now, are better then than what they are now. Yeah, and, and you think about the fact that it's just some dudes starting out going, "Oh, fucking, we're gonna use some condoms and KY jelly and make this shit happen." And I really need to do that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I need to make that happen. <laughs> For but a different context though. Yes. Totally different. Not context. a movie. Well, it could be a movie. It could be. Oh, well, you it know. We were talking about getting a camera, so those first two movies are, are amazing. So what happens between Hellraiser one and Hell or, sorry, Hellraiser two and Hellraiser three is that New World goes bankrupt. So that that production company, that studio goes bye bye and gets bought by dimension so the problem and this is where we really start to see the degradation of the franchise so hellraiser one and two are very british horror movies they are made in england they're written by english people it's from an english perspective they're all very proud to be brits and it shows there's there's a kind of a pride there when they were making hellraiser that was a controversial title okay so if they thought it has it was, hell in the title, it has How hell. Can we market that shit? Yeah, exactly. So one of the suggestions was from I think a costume designer or some old lady was what a woman wouldn't do for a good fuck. That was the <laughs> that was the alternate title of the movie. I was gonna be like heck razor, <laughs> but that's much better. Yeah. Uh, so what? And the, what a, no, yeah, good fuck. And I just, I want to quickly go over from Leviathan, because we're still, we're, we're about to move on from Hellraiser a little bit. I want to loop back to Leviathan and some of the memorable uh, quotes from 
Leviathan that I picked up from watching the abbreviated version. So uh, Oliver, uh, I forget his last name. He plays Skinned Frank. He goes on to say uh, Frank's motivation is shagging for England. And then one of them says, yeah, noble cause. And then one of the quotes is uh, when they're talking about Skinned Frank uh, in one of the stages is that he's covered in elephant cum. Yep, so that was that was pretty great. I, I would imagine that would be quite a bit. And then allegedly from the costume designer of, again, those fucking costumes are out of this fucking world. You think about, like, just, again, they're they're elegant, they're priestly, they're ghastly. They're, they're timeless. They're timeless. And they discuss that in Leviathan as well. So one, so, and this is from a different documentary. This is from the Hellraiser Revelation. So this is when Hellraiser was released on DVD for the first time there's a documentary that was made and the note was from clive to the costume designer repulsive glamour and magnificent super butchers i really like that yeah. magnificent super butchers and i'm really happy that i said magnificent right because <laughs> that's the one word that i have trouble with like sometimes in my head i think magnificent for some reason so it came out right good job you i'm still kind of an idiot but your mom would be proud so hellraiser 2 is made it's not done by clive barker he's executive producer he is prepping for his next film and i think this is something that's really interesting where he goes to make a movie about where the monsters are the hero so he's all about the inversion of tropes so whereas typically the monsters are the supposed to be representative of whatever like fear so like good versus evil is getting skewed into gray areas yes but well no flipped totally flipped where the humans and the typical humans are monsters so that's true and he gets that he understands that humans are monsters uh so he's doing nightbreed so he's adapting the novel cabal into the movie that's that is the book that you borrowed me that i wasn't sure that i had given back to that's what it was i couldn't think of the title i hope i gave it back to you because i don't know if i have it still yes you borrowed me cabal and i read maybe like 20 pages of it and then some shit happened which is totally the opposite of what i normally do because when i get into a book i get the fuck into a book yeah well again a lot of his his novels they're slow to pick up but once you're into them, like you're fucking into You are them. dedicated. You're dedicated. And committed to that shit. So he is the first one to really, I think, challenge. And, and I think this has a lot to do with being a gay man of his era and really challenging uh, societal norms. He's all about challenging and making people uncomfortable and flipping the inverse he's always been you know from what i've seen or read from interviews and seen from interviews is that he's always been more fascinated about the motivation of monsters which modern day that the person that's carrying that mantle is guillermo del toro he's the he's the one that's kind of carrying that mantle now mm-hmm. and i think yeah i can see that yep but where guillermo yes they have religious themes in common yes they have like an interest in like mechanical things Clive Barker is way erotic, and Guillermo is not necessarily no. at all. So there's there's the big difference. But like, although I didn't see his latest movie, and I hear that was kind of like fishman erotic. Oh, definitely. Like you see, woman flipping her bean, like and Abe. Then, 
Oh yeah. Like that was Abe, Abe. from Hellboy. Bonin. <laughs> he gets his own like he gets his he gets he gets his dick wet. It wasn't really Abe though, was it? No. Or what? Okay. No. Because I was gonna say it's like it was, but it wasn't. It was, but it wasn't. And he says it's not. But I'm like, dude, you've got a thing. Was. You got a thing. You got a thing going on. Anyways, I digress. Going back. Reeling it back. Going back to where we need this to go. This is probably going to be a common theme with our discussions yeah, here. We're going to be all over the place. All over the fucking place. I'm getting, I'm well drunk right now. <laughs> I'm there. I'm right there with you. Like, I'm, I I'm pretty fucked. I do, I, I don't know if I have the capacity to feel good, but I feel okay. I'm right where I need to be. Like, as far as drunken level goes... Like, I'm at the exact right level. I'm, like, not over into, like, danger territory. I'm right at that, like, that. You're in the perfect position to talk about what you're passionate about, like, really passionately. Yes. This gives me the extra passion to talk about. EP. EP. It gives you all that EP. And not ED. EP up in this P. In this B. (laughs) Yeah. So, he goes on to do Nightbreed. And I think... Uh, so this is one of the movies that he directs, he writes, he really, I think it is a passion project, but it's really controversial amongst the studio because they wanted, he very much pitched it and how he wrote it in the, in the novella was the monsters are the heroes, humans are evil, and it's that, that conflict in, in the Clive, total Clive Barker way of, you know, just making everything grandiose and really these fully fleshed out worlds. Like you really, like when you read his novels and see his films, like they're really, they're fully inhabited. They're fully thought out. They're really actually a world and you can inhabit it and feel good about what, not necessarily good, but like it makes sense. And so it's these basically groups of different, Freaks, I guess, and this is an analogy for maybe civil rights and gay movement and transgendered things. It could be an allegory. I don't know if it's an allegory or not. It makes sense that it would be, but basically, well, it would be. It could be. It could be. Uh, all of the basically the thrown away aspects of society that have been uh, purged and hated by religion. Again, that religion comes into the theme. That these uh, creatures that were basically expunged from the Crusades get together and there's a small band of them left in a place called Midian. And the story of Nightbreed is uh, a dude who has these dreams, these fever dreams, essentially waking nightmares, whatever you want to describe them of him being a freak in this place called Midian. He's describing it to his therapist. His therapist is basically saying he's insane. And truth be told, in typical Clive Biker fashion, the world is deeper than what you initially realize. It is far more fantastical and amazing than what your suburban mindset is. And I think one of the things that he, I think he does really well is like explaining the difference of like someone who's trapped in a typical, maybe conformist mindset and what it looks like being enlightened. But he does enlightenment in a different way than, say, like a Jack Kerouac or those other kind of beat poets and those sort of things. He does it in a di- he because he speaks to it a different twinge, a different theme, a different feeling, and so he dreams about being a monster, running with monsters, 
and he gets killed. And basically, because he's bitten by Peliquin, I believe is the character's name, played by Oliver Parker. Bringing it back. Bringing it back. Bringing it right back. So what's great is that Nightbreed, again, brings in Doug Bradley, brings in Simon Banfield, Oliver Parker, and Nicholas Vince. So all folks that were in Hellraiser 1 are in Nightbreed. Really cool. So it's like, is it given a bone to the people that you've worked with for years or getting cheap labor at that point? I think it's both. I think it's mutually beneficial. Like you work with these people, they, I, I, I do have to say though, like perfect. Yeah. It's mutual. Like obviously as an actor, you want to be seen, you want to be in a movie and some dude that you know is like, Hey, you want to be in a movie? Like, yes. Yes. Do you want to be? In yes. Yes. Hey, I, that's my thing. I'm an actor. I, of course I want to be in a movie. And the cool thing about Simon Bamford and Nicholas Vince is they, they get expanded roles this time around, uh, especially Nicholas Vince. He gets speaking roles. He plays Kinski, Kinski and it's much more like it's a presence. He's there. It's like, Hey, there's a, there's a fucking actor. And, but this is someone that has known Clive since the seventies. So this is 20 years on at this point. They've known each other and he's been able to continue. And those are really his, the Chatterer and Kinski are his most notable roles, and they're great roles. And they're great then Simon Bamford, who plays Butterball, Bamford, who plays, plays Monaka, and he play Monaka. he doesn't really have any like makeup per se. Like he's got a nipple ring, which is like really like the really like edgy at that time. And he's got like this like this weird fucking necklace spiky thing and tattoos. Otherwise, it's just him. Otherwise, it's just and he him. has like speaking roles. And he like, has, like he's he's in it. And he's like, oh hey, he's in it. There's like, Butterball oh, hey. without makeup. There's That's Butterball pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And you would never know. And you would, and never, you would know. never know. Exactly. You would never know. So exactly. I think. So I think you know those. You know, they're they're standout those, characters. They're, they're given characters. screen they're given time, focus. Screen time. Like, you could tell that Clyde Barker has. You tell that Clyde Barker has a loyalty to the people that have been with him, that have supported him, that have been there. Since the inception of whatever career he's taken off and going to do, so he's given these people really great characters and screen time. They're not just like they're not just like you know standout person one like Peliquin. So you go from Moving Man number two to like a main supporting character in another movie. So Peliquin is like he plays the weird. I don't know what the fuck that character is. He's like squid. He's red. He's got the weird dreadlocks. Like dreadlock. Yeah. The pinkish orange dreadlock. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. And that performance though is great. He's like, it's great. He's yeah. Like you're like, holy shit, this dude. You're like, like yeah, definitely. This character is interesting. He's engaging. Doug Bradley plays Dirk. Plays Dirk. He's the first Dirk. He's the first Dirk. So interestingly, in the original cut of the film, he has a German accent. I think it's wonderful. In the the recut, the director's cut of the movie, he redubs every line in an American accent. Shit, I don't know what version I saw. I can't remember now. You saw the director's cut. Okay. Because I borrowed it to you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was initially cut down to be a slasher film. Because again, I think at that time, people really didn't have an understanding 
of what Clive was trying to do. We were not in the time where like Twilight and all of these other things came to fruition. So when Nightbreed was being made as a film, it was controversial, at least amongst like how to market it and how to edit the film. So because he edited it to be and wrote the novel to be the monsters are the heroes. So, and it, Oddly enough, David fucking Cronenberg is the villain of Nightbreed. And that David Cronenberg's character is the main, like, driving force of the movie. Like, they didn't know what the fuck to do with themselves, ultimately. I think Morgan Creek did the, released Nightbreed. So in my life, I don't know what the fuck to do, so. Right. Well, they grossly mismanaged and mismarketed. <laughs> and I've this. done that with my life up until this point, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they they butchered the film. They cut it down. They reduced it to... Uh, they really focused heavily on uh, David Cronenberg's character as being like the main antagonist of the movie. And it's like making a slasher movie as opposed to really what it was. So it kind of... It didn't get good reviews when it came out, and it kind of, like, people knew that it was meant to be something else. Clive Barker talked about it being something else and grander than what was presented initially. And it wasn't until, shit, till 2010-ish that the Occupy Midian movement came out and pushed Morgan Creek. Wait, what? Yeah, it took... A lot of years for Morgan Creek to get their shit straight and release or allow people to have access to the raw footage of the movie. So there was uh, what's called I forget what the, the Cabal Cut. So that was floating around horror conventions for years where some, I don't know who it was, found a bunch of basically like VHS daily cuts of the movie and recut the movie into what's called the Cabal Cut. It was like four hours long. Yeah. That's, Whole, yeah, some Lord of the Rings shit right That's there. some Lord of the Rings shit. Yeah, and it was, like, tedious to get through because, you know, a lot of it, it was missing all the musical cues. Like, it had jumped back and forth being, like, a proper produced movie to, like, VHS, like, daily, like, f- stock footage to back and forth. And it... But people got the understanding, like, hey, there's something more to what's going on than what was initially released. And so there's a, a thanks to the interwebs. Way to be part of that movement. Yeah. Hey, I'm passionate about my Clive Barker. I just... So, so you know, I signed up to, like, you know, get the, the director's cut of the movie as, per, like, part of the first 3,000 recipients of the, the director's cut of that movie. Like, I was, like, on board right away i'm like yes let's do this shit so it came out and it expanded that world and recut it to where uh, i would say close to what it's supposed to be the director's cut of that movie and composed by danny elfman so i had a very timber yeah danny elfman what the fuck yeah this is way back in the day this is 1990 is when that shit came out that's crazy yeah. What the fuck? Yeah, Danny so, Elfman. Danny Elfman Holy did that. Shit. Did the score for that, and you can tell it's it's a very classical Danny Elfman score of that era. And again, like Clive Barker for his iconic movies, the score plays as much of a role as anything else into the different into the, the whole scope of the the movie. So he actually went through, and I think 
they altered or he rescored some of the the movie for the director's cut because mm-hmm. obviously like you're adding a bunch of shit in and That's really there's cool. no score to it so they're they have to re-record all that shit what's what was interesting is that Doug Bradley re-recorded all of his lines for that movie so he had originally done the movie in a german accent which i thought was perfectly serviceable but they decided that he should redub them in just a flat american accent which is kind of interesting to me. Well, like I don't know. British what... people doing American accents is so crazy to me. Yeah. So weird. And the fact that they can do them so well is like frightening. And because I mean, American people cannot do British accents to save not their at fucking all. life. There's either. like I think of like two actors off the top of my head that do successful British accents. You got uh, Rob Downey Jr. and then you've got Johnny Depp. And that's really like, as far as I know, six, like sellable British accents. When I, I think ultimately, like it's easy for British people to do American accents because you just drop all of the inflections off of your off of your speech, and you have an American accent. It's like Hugo Weaving doing uh, Mr. Smith. You know what I mean? Like you take the, you just drop <laughs> the inflection off of your speech delivery and then you've got an American you have a generic American accent Are you, uh, what's it, Charlie Hunnam or whatever it is yeah doing an American accent holy fucking shit yeah because if you think about like Charlie Hunnam doing the American accent it's really just lacking any regional inflection like, like I'm gonna do an American accent of someone who's like sort of a gangster it, what the fuck yeah well are Idris Elba in the wire so he's British. Uh, you know, he I've does... never watched The Wire, but I've really? seen the other stuff that he's been in. Yeah. So he does a a Boston gangster oh, man. accent. Oh. You know what's interesting about Idris Elba? He talks as Stringer Bell when he's in America. Like... So the reverse of that. I have a friend. His name is Alex. And I'm sure future episodes, I'm going to talk about this guy all the time just because of the crazy shit. But, like, he will go out of his way to point out differences and make shit really weird. Is he on the spectrum? He's definitely on the spectrum. And I will only say that now because I probably know he will never listen to this. But this... (laughs) That's an amazing character quirk. I'll leave it at that. Character quirk. If it were only as cute. Uh... Do we loop back around now? I We should loop back around now. We've gone off on a big Way tangent. fucking tangent. So we're like... Listen, and the crazy thing is we're stuck at Nightbreed. So that's 1990. What he's also known for is Candyman. What? Candyman is another short story that, from the Books of Blood that was adapted into... I This is... Totally new to me. I had no idea. This is crazy. So this dude is pushing boundaries like you would not even believe. So he takes Urban Legend. It's a play on um, Bloody Mary. So you say blo- the whole concept is like you play, you say Bloody Mary three times in a mirror in the dark, and she'll come and murder your ass. My brother and I had to say Bloody Mary in the mirror, and we'd watch horror movies and things like that, and say, and then like we'd chicken out. I live the dullest childhood in comparison to you so we we did the whole bloody mary thing in the in the mirror 
and this is the late 80s early 90s when we did this and uh it like terrified us terrified as a young child to do that and yeah it was great it was it was so thrilling it was i never felt more alive in my life than saying when you were about to fucking get murdered murdered murderized and and so and then the movie and then a movie came out about that whole kind of concept of you know like saying well it's Candyman three times in the mirror in the mirror and you know and obviously like Clyde Parker's whole thing is like a lot of like taking things of like tragic origin and like them exacting their revenge later on so Candyman is basically a slave who fell in love with a white woman who was like burned alive and then because of the power of urban legend came back and basically fucking kills anyone who says his name three times in a mirror and Virginia Madsen's character is working in the projects and learns about this and learns about like some young boy whose genitals are mutilated. Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice? Yes. But like more horrifying. Yeah, Beetlejuice isn't horrifying at all. No, it's his interpretation of urban legend and all that sort of thing. So that's one of the... He did not direct that movie, by the way. It's based off of one of... uh, I forget the short stories. Candyman is based off of short story. It's in there. It's in there. So that comes out. It's amazing. And I think like that's another like horror movie that really... Before that, between Nightbreed and Hellraiser 3 and Candyman come out both in 1992. So Hellraiser 3 is the transition from New World to Dimension. And mm-hmm. it moves from England to America. And you could tell the, the original thought from all the... Again, There's nothing the, scary in America. No. So in Leviathan, they do get to the point where Hellraiser 2 is a smashing success. They're going to make another one. They're going to move it to America. And they think that they're going to move the whole production, the English production team, over to America, only to find out that that's not the case. So the only people that move over are Chris Figg, who produces Hellraiser 3, yeah. and Peter Atkins, who writes Hellraiser 3. Peter Atkins actually gets a little cameo in the movie as the bartender who turns into the Spitfire Cenobite in that movie. I do remember the like the piston head Cenobite who's like it's like thrusting through his head all the time. I'm I'm just shaking my head right yeah. <laughs> thinking about that. You have camcorder Cenobite. Oh Jesus. Who like zooms so close he zooms through your skull. You have C D head, so the DJ turns into a Cenobite. And like he somehow spits CDs like as projectiles. God, that's and, so like, cringy. Yeah. The concept is interesting that because of the second the second movie the events of the second movie, what happens is that Doug Bradley's human soul is separated from the demon aspect of the character. And so you have the demon roaming free now of the rules of hell. And you have the human spirit of who Pinhead was originally was roaming free and so this reporter is some again you know stumbled upon all of the, the terrible aspects of whatever so you get camcorder cenobite cd cenobite and then camcorder. 
Yeah, you get the sexy Cenobite, the smoking, because she's got the cigarette and the trach hole. Oh, yes, the trach cigarette, yes. Yeah, the sexy trach girl Cenobite. And uh, and basically the, the theme is, is like, hell is unleashed, not tethered to any rules. So he's roaming about causing chaos. And he's brought to life through a statue. And this dude feeds hot goth girls to him for him to come to life. Feed hot goth girls to me. Doug Bradley in like human form. And it's good because Peter Atkins is writing the whole thing. And it's, it's great. Lord of Illusions. Now that is a fucking great movie. That is. That movie is fucking awesome. So Hellraiser 3 comes out. Clive Barker's a, a producer on the movie. He doesn't really have anything to do with the direction of the movie. He's kind of like disassociated. Because my understanding is that when, in order to get Hellraiser mo- made, Clive Barker had to sell a soul. He sold all his rights away to everything to get it made. So he had to say in the first Hellraiser movie, and then basically said, you get the infinite rights to Hellraiser. So he had to go on and do other things to get his voice expressed. So Lord of the Illusions which is, again, based off of one of the characters from the Books of Blood, Harry Damore, uh, and based off the short story, The Last Illusion. Again, it's an inversion of a trope. So magic, uh, like the exorcist sort of thing. And really what I think, like the contemporary, like for people to like understand exactly like the best like parallel would be like John Constantine from Constantine, not Johnny Depp per se. So I think they're contemporary, like and Constantine and Harry Demore are contemporary. Ghost private dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ghost private dick. So it's based off, Lord of the Illusions is based off of The Last Illusion. And again, holy fuck, it is an amazing movie. So we get Famke Johnson. And I didn't see this until... I don't know how many, a few years ago. Yeah. I was very impressed. Yeah. So it is a film noir, like, callback. And you've got Scott Bakula playing Harry Dumar is the main character. And he does really well in that movie. The dude from The Mummy, the, the guy who plays the weasel in The Mummy, in the first Mummy movie, you know who I'm talking about? He wears the fucking... Like the Fez hat. Apparently, he had a very good time. (laughs) (laughs) So he plays one of the supporting characters in the the movie. And it's... So that's 95. 96, Hellraiser 4 comes out. The last Hellraiser movie to be released in theaters. Last one written by Peter Atkins. And it's probably the most ambitious of the film group. So... Again, it's like the Benjamin Button of Hellraiser movies in the sense that... Or, or, the, the multiple timeline Yeah, you got it. You business. got it. It's about the creation of the Lament configuration. And basically, once Lamernshawn, Philip Lamernshawn, makes the box, he's cursed. And he's not just cursed himself, but he's cursed his entire family forever. Like, he is permanently in... in but who cares, because after you're dead, that really doesn't matter. Right, but, you know, you fuck your family from that point forward. Don't fuck your family. <laughs> Don't fuck your family. Like, that's gross. And so what I like about it, so it takes place in, like, the 17th century. Then it goes to, like, at then point in time, modern history, the modern times. 
Contemporary. Contemporary. Yes. yes. So goes there, and he's trying to, you know, Lamarchand is trying, he's an architect, and he's trying to uh, make this wonderful building that, of course, gets, uh, you know, damned by Pinhead. And then the twin Cenobites. It's interesting. Takes two twins and makes them one twin. <laughs> one twin. Makes them a person. And then you've got two, and now you're one. And then you've got like the sexy French Cenobite, where she's got like her skin like cut on the top of her head, and like she's got like fish lined to her shoulders. It's always so sexy. That's the one that you meet at summer camp and you tell your friends about because you know the French are way more open <laughs> way than American more open. people. <laughs> yeah, you definitely lost your virginity to the French one. Yes, like all day long. So she's that's another Alex story. <laughs> <laughs> So, as far as ambition goes and scope, Hellraiser 4 is probably the most ambitious. From that point, every movie from that point forward is a pile of garbage. They all start to retread the plot points of the first movie. I just want to give a shout out to Image because they did the effects for Event Horizon. Event Horizon. I remember going to see that movie when it came out in the theater with my brother. Yeah. And being fucked up afterwards. And I wouldn't watch I didn't watch that movie until last year. I refused to watch that movie yeah. because it fucked me up so much. And when I watched it last year again, I was like, ah, well, this isn't so bad. But I'm just saying, like, at the time what it did to me, fuck, that movie was some crazy shit. It was like the first movie that like did the kind of effects that like you had to pause on your VHS to like really get the scope of what the fuck was going on. Cause like the whole sequence of like, like uh, when Lawrence Fishburne is being shown like their future by fucking dude and like they're being tortured and like shit going through their mouths and yes, like that you pause it, you're like crazy what in the that movie. fuck is going on? So, like, back then when I would go to movies with my brother, we would, like, okay, we'd go to a movie and then we'd go out to eat at, like, Perkins or Byerly's. Aww. Afterwards. So <laughs> Byerly's, Byerly's is, like, a fancy grocery store and some of them have a restaurant in them and we would go there. And I remember after watching that movie, we went there and we just, like, sat there in silence. It was the same thing after seeing Saving Private Ryan, too. We were just, like, sat there and we were, like thought about the movie that we decided we're like yeah. what the fuck does that you happen? could not interact with another human being because no. you had to sit in like the experience that you had, had just been unfolded onto you yeah 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 event horizon was definitely that and was paul ws anderson paul so, ws anderson he directed mortal Kombat, which and i have a huge soft spot for because yeah. of arguably the best video game movie ever made i tried to convince some people that like wes anderson had di- <laughs> <laughs> had directed mortal Kombat, and my, oh my the God. people that i was talking to were like no that's and then they they're like that could have never happened they're like no that that didn't happen they're like oh what if that did happen? How would yes. that movie turn out? Oh my god! How that would is... that movie turn out if that had happened? Oh that would have been amazing. Paul Anderson doing. Oh my god! Yes, all day. So image animation. I'm gonna force you to watch Mortal Kombat on Laserdisc the next time you're at my place. Okay. And the thing is, like, we 
the way I have my laser disc player set up is we have to sit on my bed and watch. <laughs> so you could be the little it's... spoon when we watch it. I mean, that's fine. I'll be a little spoon. That's fine. All right. I mean, you know, your bed is well kept. I will say that it's well kept. Not like mine. Mine is fucking all over the place. So, anyways, Paul W. S. Anderson does Event Horizon. It's probably his tour de force. It's probably his best movie. Best movie. But Image Animation did other things. So they did Highlander, they did Hellraiser, they did Candyman, they did Waxwork. So they have a string of things. There's actually a Pinterest page dedicated to Bob Keane, who's who's one of the founders of Image Animation, all dedicated to his best effects. And I discovered that today as doing my research into the whole world of hellraiser and you're really good for doing that i feel pretty good about myself and i just came into this thing i didn't want to take notes because i felt like if i were going to refer to notes i would start talking like a robot (laughs) and i didn't want to do that see i like i realized that once i got drunk that i needed an anchor point i yeah and so i needed to have something to like pull me back because i would go so far left field that I'm still to... gonna bring it back to at some point the shirt that I'm wearing right now and what's <laughs> fucked up with it. Like what's wrong? There's something wrong here. There's something There's wrong. Something rotten in Denver. So yeah, Denmark. Denmark. Something rotten in Denmark. So through the mid nineties, Clive Barker is is involved in filmmaking. Clive Barker through this time is still releasing novels. And he's still upsetting genres and tropes and doing really interesting inversions. My personal favorite Clive Barker uh, book novels are the Book of the Arts. So he did Great and Secret Show in Everville. So Great and Secret Show came out in 1989. Everville came out in 1994. And we're waiting on a third entry into that series. A billion. It's like George R. R. Martin. I was just gonna We're say gonna something about that. Yeah, book six. Of... Will Will we get the next? No, he's gonna die. No, he's gonna. He's going to die, and I'm sure they're gonna force somebody else to finish it, and it's just not gonna yeah. be right. So, and we'll get to that ghostwriting. We'll get to ghostwriting here uh, at some point in time because there's an interesting theory uh, coming up. So. Through this time, he's releasing... He is in a artistic frenzy. So he's releasing... Uh, because he's a painter, he's an illustrator, he's writing tons of novels, so he's got The Great and Secret Show. He's got... He releases a Magica in 1991. He releases his first children's novel. Which Thief, is crazy. The Thief of Always. I have it. I'll borrow it to you. It's really good. It's really good. And he illustrates that shit. How is this, like... A short story, or is this? No, it's, li- it's well. I mean, it's like two hundred pages long. Okay, so it's a decent amount. Yeah, and he illustrates. That's it. actually, for I would say, for a children's story, excessive. Excessive. Almost. Maybe a young adult sort of deal. So that comes out like a, the Dragonlance version, <laughs> yeah. which I actually I won't say shit about because I love Dragonlance books. So that came out in nineteen ninety two. Uh, after that, Sacrament comes out in 1996. Galilee comes out in 1998. Cold Heart Canyon, I'll give a shout out to. Again, he's taking genres or themes and doing an inversion. So Cold Heart Canyon, 
I really enjoy that book. So it's a Hollywood ghost story. And that basically takes the trope. Like, I imagine that the main character is actually Brad Pitt. Like, I feel like... That's sexy. Yeah. So, like, the main character is, like, Brad... Something Todd. And, like... He's, back, we're back to Todd. Yeah, Todd. So he's basically, like, in an a A-list actor who's going into the twilight of his years. It's like, right on the cusp of becoming irrelevant. And he buys this house that was built in the 20s. But it being typical Clive Barker fashion, like, there's much more to the story to that. And it's basically this, was built by this 1920s, like, Russian silent film star who, like, dismantles this, like, hellish room from a monastery and then remakes it into her house. And, like, it's a her. It's a her. And anyways, so it's it's a Hollywood ghost story. It takes place across multiple timelines. It's really cool. He does his next young adult series, which is the Aberrant Quintet. So he does, you know, Aberrant one in 02, the second one in 04, the third one in 11. And then he does Maximilian Buckhaus and his traveling circus in 09, which I think is also an, a young adult book. And then he does mr be gone in 07 so mr be gone is actually a return to horror so he had been doing epic fantasy fantasy books basically from the early 90s on and this is a return almost 20 years later to horror and basically it's the idea that like the physical book that you're reading is a living entity and it can't the narrator can't be trusted so like as you're reading it's interacting with you and it's told from the perspective of a low demon it's like choose your own adventure choose your own adventure the like next fucking level yeah so it's a really interesting concept it's really clever i think it's really uh it's not that long of a novel but it's really good i really enjoyed it and it's told from the perspective of a lowly demon who uh, is suckered into becoming a book basically like they like a higher demon form uh, takes this lowly demon because he's seen too much and transforms him into a into a book but if the book it's still living and so as you're reading it it's basically like you can't trust the story that's being told to you because it realizes that you're reading it so i think it's a really interesting concept like again it's, it's really imaginative and then scarlet gospels which i gave you a copy of yes. is so this is the interesting so it's theorized that it's partially or at least half ghost written so there's been speculated that there is some health there's some health issues with clive barker and if you've noticed like previous to like 2003 he's very involved in fan community going to conventions doing all the stuff and then his health takes a left turn. And and we were talking, you know, when we started watching this, we were talking about how he had looked, how he looks, like, really fucking old or just, yeah. yeah. So he had taken a couple, he, so the last time that he had made a public appearance was 2015. And then now three year, four years later, he's making another appearance. And the, the pictures between him in 2015 and him in 2018 
like it's pretty like it's startling to see the to compare the two pictures so apparently this is all as the stories he tells is it stems from a botched dental surgery that he almost died so he went into a coma he had to recover from it and all sorts of health issues arose from that now of course there's other things that are speculated mainly being that he has aids and having been alleged to have some very uh, risque mm-hmm. sexual behavior again yeah. this is all i don't know this to be true like so hearsay that kind hearsay of thing. Yeah, these things have been leveled against him from his ex-husband etc and so on and drug abuse that sort of thing because like 2015 2016 he'd be like falling asleep during convection conventions and like slurring his speech and all these sort of things like not drunk like we're drunk and here we are slurring our speech because we're drunk and we're admitting to it but like him during conventions like nodding off and, and kind of like not being in a good place and he just disappeared for years and he just recently made an appearance uh I think last year, last Halloween, and he like looked way like again. He was he's like my parents' age, and he looks like my grandfather. Like he looked old as fuck, and pretty like. So I don't you know I, again I can't speak to you know what's going on, but there's certainly the uh, concern like for the dude's health because he did. Scarlet Gospels, which is rumored to be ghostwritten by Mark Miller. So Mark Miller, uh, I'm not sure really when he came into the picture for Clive Barker, but he did, officially he did, so Scarlet Gospels was originally like a thousand page manuscript. Like it was a gigantic novel. Mm -hmm. And during that phase, they had explored what happened to Kirstie from the first series of, of novels and um so anyways mark miller released a novella or whatever it is recently about that story but it's also rumored that he is the um the ghost writer of that of scarlet gospels just because of the quality like like what i get is like the first half of the book is classic life barker and then other parts of the book and let, listen i'm getting you a picture of clive barker right now to give you a full perspective so that's him right now jesus like, yeah and what we saw of him in the documentary leviathan it, it much much younger looking yeah so and i'll give you so i'll give you a picture from 2015 whoa so it's a huge difference. Like, like obviously, like in this picture from 2015, like he was dying his hair, as you do if you're trying to look younger. Uh, in the picture from 2018, he's not dying his hair, so he looks a little. He doesn't have a goatee in the newest picture, but like it's a startling difference between the two of the two pictures. Like they don't even look like the same person. Yeah, holy crap! Look at the. I got another one for you. Let's see here. I'm about to get another one here. You're, you're about to get it all. It's looking kind of rough. Yeah, he's looking rough. 
and he's not that old. I mean, like he again, he's my parents' age. Now, there's a long-awaited, you know, there's a ru- long-rumored uh, remake of Hellraiser. So this was uh, initially approved, I think, back in like '09. I was actually going to ask you about this, like so, what you would think of it. It switched, I think, between like three directors. So um, what happened was ultimately they released this Paul, this really shitty uh, Hellraiser Revelations or some shit. Are you going to show me the picture of the person who's not Doug Bradley playing Pinhead? Yeah, Hellraiser Judgment is the the newest of the that's why and it's just you know and again i'm not gonna watch it and just because i'm a true i I just can't do it but apparently it's a pile of shit they do have a classically trained theater actor playing pinhead uh in this movie and not just some jabroni but it's not good again very clearly they're just trying to dimension is trying to retain the rights to the franchise, and what's tragic is that they're, uh, they again they don't know. Like I think they don't know what to do. With the franchise they're not willing to invest any money into it whatsoever. But they know that if someone else does it, they'll do it a million times better and probably make a bunch of money. So they're just like putting out these shitty sequels just to retain the rights. So no one else can do it. So no one else can do it. That's exactly right. So it's 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 the tragedy, the limbo. But then again, I don't necessarily trust Seraphin Films, which is Clive Barker's production company, to own the franchise again, because I feel like Clive Barker is so over the franchise. So I really got that after, you know, watching Leviathan and all this other stuff. Like, here I'm going to do this horror movie, and then I'm done with that, and I'm moving on to the next thing. And I I don't think that. He, he apparently wrote a script for the remake and then it just it never went anywhere and there was a bunch of people that attached to direct the sequel and that just always fell through and then they did this other fucking sequel directed by an effects makeup artist and again I'm not gonna like trash because I think James Cameron was originally in makeup effects so it's, it's not like that's not an unheard of transition to right yeah but Jerry or Gary J. Tunacliffe and James Cameron are entirely different caliber of talent. And it just doesn't, it's not the same thing. And but it's a like, wasted opportunity. With the everything old is new again thing, what movie from the 80s or whatever that has been remade now has been anywhere remotely near as good as it was? Nothing. None. Nothing. Well, because I think, like, the 80s is a very unique time. So you could say some things that are interesting and outlandish, like RoboCop being a great social satire. I love that movie. That Which is part of the Verhoeven trifecta. Do you have any other things you want to add? I didn't touch on, like, you know, he's a fantastic artist. He, like... He was he is actually really seeing some of the stuff that he's drawn. He's a skilled artist. Yeah. So he at least in the last 20 years or so, he draws or paints everything and then writes the story. So he his thing 
his inspiration comes from the paintings that he does and then he writes stories based off of the paintings i like that because then like if perhaps it was adapted to film there would be already a set in stone thing like this is what it looks like yeah rather than leaving it to you know whoever was directing or whatever yeah. that to come up with the look of things yeah so he that's how at least in the last, in the past that's how he's he's done things and so he has four art books out the imaginer series uh one through four and you can buy them off of his official website and they're gonna cost you some dough what is his official website i believe it's clivebarker.com okay it's it's pretty straightforward all right, so I, I think we've we've covered as as much as we can about the Clive Barker uh, being drunk and everything else. I think it's a good place to end the show. So this is Eric. This is Kyle. And uh, till next time, we'll uh, join you again. We've got some ideas for the next show, and we will join you then. Thank you.